And we're back. We are back. <laughs> Welcome back to Script v. Manuscript. This is episode four. We are the podcast that uh, discusses books and movies that uh, are based on one another. We will we'll discuss movies that were books and books that were movies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we, are, we, do not, we do not discriminate. <laughs> so uh, we have been back, we're back from a long holiday season hiatus. And yeah. uh, sorry for the delay. Indeed. All of our dedicated fans out yeah, there. Yeah, all five of them. Yeah, they've been asking. <laughs> Three of them are my students, and this is assigned work. Yeah, so. one of the guys at our uh, one of the guys at our uh, church. <laughs> so, all four of you. That's right. <laughs> we know about you. We appreciate you. All right. So today we've got. Uh, if you listened to the last episode, and uh, maybe you're fortunate enough to have listened to it recently, you may remember at the end we had a little discussion about what movie we were going to be covering today, yeah. which was kind of a spontaneous choice. And it was The Ghost in the Darkness. Yes, it was. And the book that, uh, which I had not read at the time, but yeah. it was one that I knew I was gonna, I was interested in. So it was a good excuse. So we got our hands on a copy of that, and uh, we watched the movie. So that's what we're going to be ch- chatting about today. But let's get through our usual uh, segments before yes. we get into the meat of the episode, pun intended. <laughs> that's good. Uh, all right, well, I, I'll go ahead and start us off then right. uh, with what I'm reading, what I'm watching. Okay. So I uh, just finished teaching Beowulf uh, at school, which is always a great read. Love that story. Um, absolutely fantastic. And uh, looking forward to actually talking a little bit about it in our um, uh, Storytelling 101 uh, segment. Yeah. Uh, so looking forward to that a little bit. And we'll be doing an episode that's going to be on. Oh yeah, for yeah, sure. We will we will do that soon. That's, oh yeah, that's 100%. coming up. So if you like Beowulf, um, stick stick around. Yeah, it may not be the next one, but it'll be it'll be soon. relatively soon. I yeah, think. relatively soon. Uh, so that's great. And uh, what I'm watching, man, I am just eating up the book of Boba Fett. So okay, yeah. I uh, the those first four episodes were pretty rough. Yeah. Uh, that third one particularly was unspeakably bad well i turned it off after the third one yeah. i was embarrassed to watch it yeah i was embarrassed on on behalf of the production crew that sure. was involved and the actors i just thought this is this is one of the most pathetic things that i've seen yeah it, um so much, we could do a whole episode just on that um so I, I won't i won't bore our listeners too much with with all of that but it, it was definitely um not Filoni and Favreau's most shining moment, yeah. but they redeemed themselves with episode five, uh, which spoiler alert for those of you who are lis- who are watching. Five has been out for two weeks. It's by been the out. time that this is being recorded. Yeah, so, so I, I'm gonna. So this if is you, on you. If you've not seen it, skip. Skip two ahead. and a half, two and a half minutes <laughs> ahead. Uh, but episode five, or you know, perhaps better coined, Mandalorian season three, episode one. Yeah, uh, really takes the show in a good direction, and episode six. Really, uh, really, really enjoyed episode six. Mm-hmm. Um, again, spoiler alert. So if you've not seen it, skip thirty seconds ahead. But the best Luke Skywalker we've seen since yeah. the original trilogy, mm-hmm. because what we got in the sequel trilogy is unspeakably bad yeah, for sure. Luke Skywalker. Yeah. So uh, really been enjoying That's that. Not those things don't exist. Yeah, right. Yeah. What, what am I even saying? What yeah. What is the sequel trilogy? It's just <laughs> yeah. Uh, it doesn't even exist. I'm a curmudgeon about Star Wars, which sure. our, our listeners will, will hear us refer to Star Wars a lot because sure. it's such a usually it's, it's often such a good example. In fact, it's a really good um, one to reference because we have such a wide variety. There's examples mm. in the Star Wars canon of horrible things, horrible storytelling problems. And it is also, at least in film, some of the very best storytelling 
that I am aware of. Oh, sure. So sure. it's really great to contrast. Um, so it'll, it will use a lot of it. And I, I don't, you know, I've seen the prequels a lot more than I've seen the sequels because the prequels I don't like much, but mm. the sequels I hate. Yeah, yeah, that's and, that's um, fair. And they hate me right back. And so um, I don't. We, we may not talk about them as much because I just sure. don't know them. I actually I haven't even seen episode nine. I've well, just, for our listeners, if you guys are Star Wars fans, uh, and you haven't gone over to our sister podcast, Pop Culture Quorum Deo. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, Jeff had me on, the host of Pop Culture, he had me on a while back to talk about Star Wars as our our culture's epic. Yeah. Um, that it is our Odyssey. Mm-hmm. It is our Aeneid. It is our Beowulf. Yeah. Um, and so I, I did a little bit of a uh, rough sketch of that kind of thesis. Um, so if you're into Star Wars, you might go check that out. Of course, don't go yet. Because we got good stuff today. Yeah. But after this is done. Don't you know, touch that dial. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's what I've been reading. That's what I've been watching. You got okay. anything to update me on? Uh, no, just my usual diet of uh, uh, kind of crummy bee films. <laughs> and um, I've been reading. Um, I found an interesting book. Got traded in at the store. Immediately caught my eye because it's it's about tall ships, which is, I just love to read about those. Yeah, sure. Um, so this is called Two Years Before the Mast by awesome. Richard Dana. I think it's the, Dana is the, definitely the last name. I think it's Richard. That title sounds familiar to me, but I can't is, place. Is it, it is considered a classic. Okay, uh, it's kind of a lesser known one. I don't think that it's one that you'll see on a lot of like you have to read this for the Western canon kind of thing. Sure, um, it is a journal type book. It's a nonfiction about this guy who was a Harvard or I think it was Harvard. It was either Harvard or Yale um, college person. Um, who either graduated or took a break from college because his eyesight was getting was failing him, and he thought that if he could get out, get out on the ocean where he had to like look long distances and kind of exercise his vision and escape from academia for a little while, that he mm. would kind of re- you know renew his vigor. Um, so he takes a a contract uh, to go on a merchantman sailing ship, yeah, um, a brig, which is. Uh, I think it's a. Th- I think the one that he's on is a three-masted one. So it's a, it's a ship. It's technically a ship. Um, Eighteen forty. So it's towards the end of the sailing ship era because steam engines are starting to to become more common. But um, he knows nothing when he starts. He's seasick, and um, it's been really interesting to look at because he's a he's classically educated, which sure. is a lot of fun for for you and I because we both have experience teaching at a classical school right and um so he's able to pick up languages on their journey because he knows how um, he, he learns spanish very rapidly because he's uh, practically fluent in latin uh and he just he picks up on things it's he's very interesting he doesn't toot his own horn like it doesn't come across as like a sort of a vanity thing where he wants everyone to know how great he is because sure. he does talk a lot about difficulties and how he wasn't good at things, but um, I love that that kind of stuff. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, and I just finished Captain Blood, which is a pirate story. Okay. Uh, which is a really good one. It's uh, about a guy who was wrongfully accused of being a rebel uh, during the restoration of Charles oh, sure. II uh, in England. And was sentenced to, he was originally sentenced to death, but was uh, mercifully granted what they used to call transportation, which means he became a slave and he was sent to the West Indies to be a slave in a um, sugar plantation. Escapes from slavery with a crew of other slaves, steals a ship from the Spaniards and becomes a pirate, wildly successful. Um, really interesting book. His uh, his ship is named the Annabelle, uh, named after the 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 guy who owned him. When he was a slave, had a niece named Annabelle that he 
fell in love with huh. uh, while he was there. And she was she basically functioned as his conscience throughout his piratical journeys. He endeavored to only do things that he thought she would approve of if she ever heard. Okay. So it, it makes for a pretty interesting uh, like plot device. Yeah. Where, um, he won't. He's not ruthless, um, but he's he's one of these characters who's always finding a way out of tight spots. Yeah, uh, cool. he's less braggadocious than Jack Sparrow, but he has kind of a similar like luck and um, boldness to his actions. I like so, that. Um, uh, riches, riches to rags to riches story, um, but it's a lot of fun. There's a, there is a movie of it. We maybe maybe we'll do it sometime. It's a really old movie. I think it has Errol Flynn. Oh as, yeah, uh, Captain Blood himself. Okay, okay. And uh, so who knows? But it's a swashbuckler for sure. So sure. That's what I've been reading. I've been watching Boba Fett also. Um, mostly on your recommendation, I picked it up after episode three. <laughs> yeah. I quit after episode three. You told me episode four was mod- a marginal improvement above three, but five was on its own worth watching. Yes. And really, you don't even need to watch the first Agreed. four if yeah. you watch five. Now, you might be a little confused about six. The only gripe that I have, and this is really saying something with those, is that he's flying a Naboo starfighter, <laughs> which I reject. Come and on, man. That's when wizard. He, when he lands, yeah, and he says wizard <laughs> as an adjective, uh, which is, of course, a reference to um, Jake Lloyd as Anakin Skywalker right. in some super cringe scenes. Uh, but I, I can't help but think that when they wrote that, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. Like, they, they were like... We're making the prequels cool, sure. Which they kind of did. Everybody who who likes the prequels, um, uh, you don't run into a ton of people our age who like the prequels for their own sake, right? With the exception of maybe Episode Three, right? But if you're a person who has consumed the Clone Wars, right, that, that really undergirds the prequels a lot, and that of course is the same creative team behind Boba Fett and the Mandalorian. Correct. So it makes sense, and I think that they kind of were like, we're the only reason why the prequels kind of have any any purchased in a lot of people's uh cultural canon sure and uh so we we kind of clay claim to this yeah and, they did, and the and the ship that they built is a really cool kind of hot rod looking it job. is yeah so yeah i'm 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 happy to agree with all that stuff and and for sure uh the clone wars fills in all the gaps right mm-hmm. and makes the prequels suddenly like a feel like a complete cohesive narrative you feel the loss of anakin skywalker in a way that the movies just don't do because you don't really he's not really given an opportunity to shine as a as a hero and yeah, as a yeah. he's as never a, a really a good guy yeah as a good guy and so his his fall you don't really you don't get what you need despite the fact that i think uh Ewan McGregor's Obi-Wan Kenobi does his best to to make us feel that anyway. Yeah. Um through superb acting in episode 3, it just it's just not enough. So, uh yeah, all that's all that's good. So, uh anyway, yeah. sounds like some got some good books there. I might have to swing by Walls of Books and pick up a couple. Yeah, you might. Uh, pick up right. a couple 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 of copies. Man, can't say that 10 times fast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you think? We should move on to storytelling? I think uh let's see. Yes. Oh, should, oh, should it have been a book or movie? We should do yeah, that first. Yeah, that's uh, that's what's up next. So I, uh, I, we just hatched this plot right beforehand, <laughs> and I haven't alerted you to this. But what I wanted to do is instead of pick a specific one, because we we tossed around the idea of a specific video game, which I won't say now because we might come back to it. Sure. But I wanna I want to know because I've had this this thesis: video games converted into films almost universally flop. Yes. Right. Why yes. and I'm gonna I'm gonna propose a thesis. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna see if you agree. Yeah. Okay. Do you think that 
video games uh, are are not compatible with any other medium? And if so, why? Um, interesting, interesting uh, um, proposition, interesting question. I think, just as a side note, I think that there are a limited number of books yes. that are not transferable into film. And, and the reverse would also be true. There okay. are some things that, like, if this isn't on film, then it isn't. Then, then you're missing out. You're like, missing uh, something. Yeah, like uh, Star Wars might be one of those. I yeah. mean, I think I would read Star Wars, but like, I don't know. So much of it is visual. Right. Um, so much is is dependent on the visual yeah. medium. Um, I I've not experienced these, but The Witcher immediately comes to mind. I know okay. those those books are oh yeah pretty okay. popular, mm-hmm. and the video games are also very popular. Yeah. Now I've never played the video game or read the books, mm-hmm. so I, that's just a. I have done all three. Casual observer. Yeah. So that that might be one that I would point to to say. So you, I mean, you would know better than I would. Yeah. Uh, but that that might be one I point to to say that that seems to have cross platformed yeah. really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a unique one because you have fan bases that are very independent. Um, the 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 Netflix series probably is the smallest fan base because sure. it's new. Oh, you know what? I hadn't even. So actually, it's a, it's a movie. So it's a it's a TV show, yeah. a video game, and a book. Yeah. And technically, there's a movie, but nobody knows about that because oh, okay. it's a tiny, low-budget thing that sure. I think was made in Poland. Okay. Um, so yeah, The Witcher is an interesting is an interesting series. So The Witcher has been around for quite a while, actually. I think the '80s, maybe okay. even that far back. Um, the they are Polish language books that were so popular that they were translated into English, sold reasonably well here, and a Polish video game, Polish-based video game company, um, decided to adapt. Uh, the character into a video game and uh, that was just the original witcher game which i played not a lot of people around who remember the original one um, because it wasn't very popular when it first came out it was a really fun game the plot was really interesting um and it it is like a sequel to the books Uh, Mm. the author that wrote the books was involved and so he he kind of guided the way that they did it but basically the end i don't want to give away the end of the books in case someone wants to read it but um they that this picks up afterwards gotcha and it's really convenient because the way that the books ended allow them to uh start a, like a level like a character progression uh system within the game that kind of starts from scratch so you get to like if you're an rpg player you know you get to pick your own little perks and feats and advance your character along different lines like you can be a good swordsman or you can be good with your spells or you can be good with your um, alchemy, alchemy stuff. Those are kind of the three big ones for the for the Witcher. And all the, all three of the games have had that. The, the third Witcher game, um, I don't know if it's the best-selling video game ever, but it's it was insane. It was insane how much it sold. Right. When the show came on Netflix, it again experienced another burst of, of that. And sure. the plot is great. The video game itself is great. It's massive open world. Um the quests are uncommonly well made. Like, you know, there's a lot of grind quests in RPGs. Sure. You would go on a grind quest in this and think, Oh, I just got to go fetch this stupid thing. Then you'd get in there and it would be a three hour long ordeal where major characters would show up from previous installments. And if you're a person who read the books, then you get some extra bonuses in there because you know, some of these people that are, that have been referenced. But anyway, you, the Netflix show seemed to have won a lot of people over. There was some complaints because uh, Netflix is notorious for like race swapping, gender flop, flipping, sure. stuff like that. Um, so people were like, well, that doesn't match up with the description in the book. Or that doesn't match up with the description 
in the game, like the way that they depicted her in the game. Mm. Um, and so it's just funny because there's like three fan bases that kind of dispute, but it seems like generally they all kind of like the other. Sure. So maybe there's an example of one. Yeah, I, w- I mean, it's the one I would point to to say it's probably the most successful. I would agree that I honestly can't even think off the top of my head of a video game property starting as a video game. Yeah. And move and maybe then The Witcher didn't. Right, you're saying it started. It was a game is a book first. Book yeah. first. Mm-hmm. So if we sort of laser focus in on started as a video game, mm-hmm. I can't think of a single property. Yeah. That I mean, Sonic, the new Sonic movies, maybe oh, I've not yeah. seen them, yeah. but um, apparently they were pretty. They're doing a Mario Brothers. Oh gosh, they've already done have you one seen, Mario Have you seen Brothers. that one? Yeah. Oh good, <laughs> that is a that's a rite of passage. Yeah. That's a crucible. That is, actually, that's a guilty pleasure of mine. I really, <laughs> I really like that movie. I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, uh, but, but you know, I like bad movies. Too. Sure. Yeah. So, you you have a like, soft spot. I don't, spot I don't your sit heart. there watching this going like this is underrated. I'm like, no, it's appropriately panned <laughs> by everyone, but it's still a lot of fun for me because it's just so silly. It is. Uh, so we have those. I, I can't think of anything good now. If I were to try to narrow down why, why are video games so difficult? I have a theory about this. I'm curious if you have the same. Sure. Answer. Um, uh, my my immediate instinct is to say that video games are designed to uh, immerse players into an experience um, where uh, that is that is largely dependent upon action and interaction and not conception so uh, you know video games uh, I'm thinking about like why are 2d scrollers super fun right super popular why are games like uh mortal Kombat and super smash wildly popular there's no story yeah like there's none um but it's about um, but some of those have been turned into movies mortal Kombat just recently had another adaptation. sure yeah which i wasn't good i think maybe i i heard that i mean the previous adaptations of it i th- were not good either right but i think they knew what they were doing and it was just like we just need an excuse to have cor- you know choreographed Kung Fu sure. fights and Kung have Fu a fight. few fam- you know ca- characters come out that yeah someone said get over here for yeah yeah kind of Goro and whatever else yeah so I I guess I would say that as this a, one had more of a plot and I think it was a step up but I don't think it was like good yeah so. so just like generally as a whole I would say video games just seem to me to be designed in order to engage people tech uh, what's the word I'm looking for like tactilely yeah. right like with their hands and not so much with their um like in, in a storytelling realm. Now, of course there are plenty of video games that do that. Well, mm-hmm. um, plenty of video games that have incredible stories. So, you know, uh, but I just think generally as a whole, that's, that's the meaning. So that's, that's kind of my instinct. Uh, that might not be right. Uh, there may be enough, enough video games that have incredible stories to be like, no, that's not it. It's something else. Um, but that's, that's my, my instinct. I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are. Right, so my theory is that because, uh, when you are given, especially more modern games, the player has a lot of determination about what the POV character does. Mm. You know, even if it's not like a like a blank slate. Like if you play Skyrim, your character basically is not a character. Right. You think whatever you think is what the character thinks, and right. you get a limited number of text responses. But like, there's not much personality there. Sure. But that doesn't bother anyone because they can play it how they want. Their actions kind of speak for them. Mm. You play a game like The Witcher, he has a little bit more of a personality, but you still get a lot of control over what he does, who he helps, if he's going to be a jerk, if he's going to ignore this or that. Um, 
And then you you go see a movie of this, and you're like, "That's not the way I that's played the, it." Ah, that's interesting. That's not the way I want. That's not the way I thought of the character. Yeah. Um, and so I just that's one of the reasons huh. why I say maybe video games, because of the way they're constructed, are not amenable to. And I think there's exceptions. So we're so at the time of this recording, Uncharted is about to come out. Sure. Or ha- I don't even know because I don't keep up with like recent. Releases, I mean, the, they've released a trailer at this point. I think so yeah. It's okay, soon. so it's, it's soon coming. Um, so Uncharted is an example of one that I think might could work. Sure. Because of how cinematic the game is, right. it's almost like a movie that you get to participate in. Right. And so, sure, why not? Um, why not just turn it into a movie that you don't really get to participate in? Right. To see if it works kind of the same way. So sure. Um, we'll see that that could be something yeah it's uh it's interesting because i wonder too video games exploded in popularity in the 90s i mean they mm-hmm. video games have always been kind of popular as yeah. long as they've been around from you know pong right and yeah. and, and even what whatever predates it whenever whenever home gaming systems became affordable which yeah. i guess was the late 80s yeah i would say probably late 80s yeah. right so late 80s early 90s right video games become you know, an explosive form of entertainment. And I wonder if anybody has ever tried to track the level of eisegesis versus exegesis with storytelling mm-hmm. and the way that we understand stories mm-hmm. um, with that experience. Because what you're talking about sounds to me a lot like I'm eisegeting myself mm-hmm. and my own um, frameworks yeah. onto this skeletal structure yeah. you're reading your i'm reading myself into this view into this person exactly versus so for example right skyrim yeah this is one that's widely known widely played there's lots of broad binary choices in the elder scroll series yes. so in skyrim there's two factions in civil war pick one doesn't matter which one there's no moral difference between the two right because whichever one you pick to play you are not punished um, there's there may be some consequences, but generally it's not like you're a bad person for picking the empire. Right. And if you if you're a person who, a lot of it has to do with how you interpret the end game politics. So like, the high elves are kind of bossing everyone around. They're being mean to the Nords, and the Nords want their independence. So let's support independence. Or you could say no. The Nords need to unite with the Empire so that they can all work together to overthrow the high elves because they're bad. So right. you really there's a moral justification for either thing. Right. So how you choose to play that depends a lot about your perspective, right? Like a like a libertarian's probably going to pick the Nords cuz sure. they're going to say, well I think the Nords should be self-governing. Sure. So and there also, you go. And also Beowulf. Sure. <laughs> so you have there's your ICG. Yeah, I never played the Empire. You import you import your You're right. I mean, I've never played as the Empire. I'm a li- I would say I have libertarian tendencies, libertarian I views. I played both cuz I was curious. Man, down with the Empire. But I think that the Nords is more fun. Yeah, clearly. But also, you and I are of a similar mind, I'm sure. Yeah. So, that's interesting. Yeah, I I think you've nailed it. Um, and I'm sure m- the more invested you are in a video game that you that doesn't allow for... That, that isn't story-driven the way that like Uncharted is, but is more like Skyrim or... Uh, the more disappointed you can feel when a, when the actor and the director and the writers are making choices that you never would. Yeah. And suddenly that character feels foreign. And Or the other big one is it's clear that whoever the creative team is did not play the game. Oh, sure. Yeah, that would be – that's too on the nose. But, yeah, sure. And you could definitely see, like, there mm-hmm. are definitely those situations. No, I think that's good. And, you know, so if you're out there and you're thinking – you're playing your video game and you're thinking, I want to make this into a movie uh, – 
be thinking about you're not the only one playing that video game and how are you gonna how are you gonna do that i mean that's that's not an easy task but hopefully i mean i i I'm, did you ever play uncharted no uh, I didn't I, have an Xbox, or I don't know what system it was originally on. But I think it's a PlayStation exclusive, I played, actually. I played computer games for a while. I haven't gotcha. in a couple of years now. but yeah. um, Uncharted was, was pretty good. Yeah, uh, I played the first three, I think, mm-hmm. and uh, they, were, they were good games. Well, um, see, that to me almost is like, okay, let's pretend to be Indiana Jones. Right, sure. Uh, and sure. that's kind of, they made a game out of that. And right. that's a great idea, you know, because everybody would love, sure. not everybody, but like a lot of people who are like, well, I'd love to go on an adventure with Indiana Jones or be him, you know. And you can do that while you watch the movie. Or you can play a game that enables you to actually walk in those shoes. Now, clearly it's not the same, technically it's not the same intellectual property, but it is, you know, it is uh, an Indiana Jones-like situation. Yeah, so. absolutely. Yeah, that's good. Uh what do you think? Storytelling 101? Jump into it? Yeah. Uh, well, I got I got something for us. So just as I mentioned before, just finished teaching Beowulf to my... Uh, so this is the part of the podcast where we, we discuss a, a storytelling basic. Yes. So if you, if you like film, if you like books, if you're a writer thinking about doing things, we are not writers. So get better <laughs> advice. But we are going to discuss... <laughs> or at least better uh, advisors. <laughs> yeah. We are going to discuss some basic storytelling concepts and we try to do at least one every time so we reference a lot of things and uh, we want to make sure that we we go back and hit those and don't just assume everybody knows what all those things are yeah so go ahead yeah so um i'm big on epic poetry i know that's probably one of your favorite literary genres to to read and study as well um and i think they they just are so profitable for learning um how to tell stories how to, how to tell them well and uh beowulf no exception to that rule uh is absolutely fantastic and if you've not read it, listener, go read it. Pause this. Go read it, and then come back um, because it's great. It's really and not that long. It's not. A lot of people, I think, are intimidated by it, but um, it's very manageable. Yeah, absolutely. And the Seamus Haney translation. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some intellectual snobs who will say it's not a real translation because he didn't really do any work. He just piecemealed other people's work together. I take no. I don't. I don't know anything about it. So maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. But it's if, very readable. If you're a snob, also Tolkien did one. So the Tolkien one. Yeah, yeah. Um, read the Tolkien one. Nobody can really gripe. You know about what? His I language. am a snob. <laughs> read the Tolkien one. <laughs> anyway, I'm losing myself. So here we go. Uh, just finished Beowulf, and one of the elements of Beowulf that I absolutely love um, is the use of Sisera verse. And so uh, most people who um, can think back to their uh, high school days will will remember that a lot of the ancient stories began as oral traditions. Mm -hmm. These are stories that were um, spoken and recited orally, passed down, followed to son, spread around tribe to clan. Mm -hmm. Bards would carry them, them, you know, uh, and sort of sing them for money and for entertainment. And this is is how um, characters became so fabled is because that's how they were spread. And uh, in that pursuit of oral tradition, uh, the the poets of old uh, utilized the different literary devices in order to make that uh, that poem both easier to remember and enjoyable to listen to uh, using different things of uh, different uh, literary devices that we typically categorize as rhyme, meter, yeah. structure, right, um, that give uh, poems a lyrical um, rhapsody kind of feel. Yeah. 
And poems are, are always better when read aloud. Yes, that absolutely. is one of the that is one of the things Hallmark. about poetry that Hallmark is true. I would say that about anything that's really metered, metered which means yes. that it's written with a it's written with a structure. So Shakespeare writes po- so poetry, but his plays in many cases are in iambic pentameter, which right. just means that there's five beats per line, basically. Um, and so if you read it aloud. You may or may not, depending on, or if you listen to a play version of it, which is the way it's meant to be, sure. you you may or may not pick up on the meter because the actor may not include it in heavily into their performance. Nevertheless, it is present. Yes. And so you, it's one of those things where you may not notice it consciously, but Absolutely. your brain did. Absolutely. And uh, with something like Beowulf or, or Paradise Lost or the Iliad or the Divine Comedy, you're going to hear it more because it's uh, the the way they tell the story is dependent on this on this. Um, structure that they have chosen and that's it as a writer think about how your writing style can heighten um, reflect enhance subtextually hint at your themes and your writing purposes Mm -hmm. and the Beowulf and poet um, the one who uh, wrote Beowulf down uh, whose identity we do not know uh, he whoever that person was from the oral tradition that was handed down uh, wrote Beowulf using what's commonly referred to as Sisera verse. And what this means is that each line has a natural break uh, right near the center of the line uh, that gives the poem uh, an ebb and flow uh, that is really, really pleasant to the ear. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it's very, we... (laughs) now because it's sort of ingrained into us as westerners we often sort of associate this kind of thing with like heraldry and mm-hmm. um epic lays right so like the the beowulf the man of old drew up his sword he slayed the dragon the mighty foe he ba 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 right there's this there's this seesaw of mm-hmm. um of words and if you put a lot of heavy stress on it just like with the iambic pentameter you can really hear it mm-hmm. but you, even if you don't it's still present yeah. and it still creates an effect and the effect of Sisera is uh, it sounds like the ocean. Mm-hmm. It sounds like the tide rolling in. Um, I'm from New Jersey, uh, not born and raised here in Tennessee, and one of the very few things that I miss about uh, my northeastern roots is the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to live 30 minutes from the beach, and I would frequent uh, frequently uh, go to the ocean, and I used to love to just listen to the waves come rolling in. There was just such a wonderful rhythm mm-hmm. to God's world uh, when I would stand on the beach and, and just take in the waves. And Beowulf reads like that. Sure. And uh, when you think about the ancient Nords, yeah. uh, who are the, which is the culture that, that mm-hmm. Beowulf is sort of based on. He's, uh, uh, he's, so, so if you haven't read it, Beowulf is, is uh, he's from Yachtland, Yachtland which is, yeah. which is uh, I guess kind of like the Danes. He's he's, he's he's relative to them. I guess he, he's from Scandinavia. He's from um, yeah. So Jotland would have been like the southern tip of Sweden, mm-hmm. and then Denmark would have been the Danes. So where, they would have been right across yeah, the that's water. That's where most of the story takes place. Yeah, between Denmark um, and Sweden. And uh, and of course, it was originally written in in Saxon. Right. Uh, the the well, not originally, but the version that we have. The ver- yeah, sure. The version was written have. in Saxon, um, which is which could also be called Old English. If you think Shakespeare is Old English, <laughs> you're, you're incorrect. Yes. Shakespeare is technically Modern English. Yes. It's just Old Modern English. Right. Middle English, which almost sounds like a different language, is Geoffrey Chaucer. Chaucer. So if yeah. you go find Chaucer 
and look at some of that, um, you'll think, oh, this is really wild. It's you can you'll pick up on about half of it, sure, without having to study it. Old English is a different language, different language. altogether. Yeah. Um, you you may notice a few things. Um, sometimes it's fun. The the Haney translation that you guys use at school has the it's the um, parallel translation, yes. right? So you yes. have the English on one side and the old English on the other, right? And and every once in a while, a student will notice something. Um, we had a student who uh, I when I taught it one year, I had a student uh, who his name it turned out was a Saxon word and it meant sacred stone. And I, and when he noticed that he just happened to see that um, because this, the word sacred stone appears in the poem and he was just kind of glancing at the other page and he saw that it was very similar to his, his given name. And uh, he just thought that was really cool. Yeah. It's um, awesome. I mean, you'll find the word orc sure. is in there, is in right? There. And yeah. that's a reference to like Grindel and some, uh, the, the, I can't remember specifically what it's talking about, but it's some, some, some like sprite creature, or yeah. yeah. So there's there's things you'll notice, but one of the cool things about Beowulf is that if you go get on YouTube and look for it, you can find some modern day scalds actually reciting it in the original. Yes, and to be honest, it sounds like Swedish Chef from it. the Muppets, <laughs> but um, uh, it is it is a cool language. Benjamin and, Bagby. Yeah, if you find Benjamin Bagby, he will uh, he will shock and awe you. Mm-hmm. Guy's incredible. Yeah, and it's just cool to me that this is. At at youngest, a thousand year old poem. Yes, yeah, um, by any moderate stretch. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of people think it's older than that. Uh, well, it, we know for sure it is, but it was written down at least, or at most, or excuse me, at youngest a thousand years ago. Right. And uh, people are still to this day committing themselves to memorizing it. Yeah. Because they recognize its value. And and you know, for a writer, consider how your style. Your syntax, your structure, and and you know you may not be writing poetry, but it applies to prose as well. Yeah, I'll give uh, you an example of that. Um, this one is very like obvious. Uh, it's not it's not a, uh, like a necessarily a world famous book, but if you are at a bookstore and you want to pick up a, a book that does this in a really interesting way, look for a book called House of Leaves uh, by Daniel something Uski. I can't remember what his name is. Um, yeah, you, if you would look that up yeah, while I, I ramble for a minute, um, maybe Daniel Lewski is the last name. Anyway, it's called House of Leaves. It's a horror story. Yeah, Mark Arthur Mark Danielewski. Yeah, Mark Danielewski. So, um, it's a horror story about a guy who basically slowly goes insane. Uh, I won't get. I won't give you more information than that. But the book itself, as you're reading it, becomes less coherent. Um, and when I say that, I mean basically it's formatting. Is strange. Like on one page, the words will be upside down. Some pages you'll go for several pages with nothing on them. A few of them have like one word on them, or it'll be in a the the typeface will be written in a circle, and it'll make like a continuous sentence that doesn't huh. end. And so this is this is a situation where he went beyond merely writing it, but he was like he had to probably go to his publisher and be like, it's very specifically formatted to accomplish this very specific purpose, right? And it's to help the reader get in the mind of a crazy person. Right. And so how do you do that? Well, you disorient all the the norms of the, the reading experience. Sure. So very cleverly done. And that's, that, that is a very bold, big example. There are, there are other examples that are not as bold. Sure. I would point to Hemingway as one of those. Hemingway is notoriously understated. And so when he wants there to be sort of smoldering passion between two people, he isn't going to say that that's there. You're going to have to pick up on it by 
reading what's there and also paying attention to what is not said. Yeah. What is not said. He's almost like this guy who, um, I don't know, like artists sometimes talk about like the, the meaning of their, um, void space. I can't remember the artistic term for that, but it's like, you have to, you have to strategically use places where you don't paint. Mm. They have to, they can mean things and they, they can have, they can serve a function in the overall art, artistic, device like the, the gotcha. painting and so i think hemingway kind of does that too so sure. this is really subtle it's not very noticeable um but yeah i mean well and you know jane austen the queen of irony right um shakespeare when you watch his plays and like you said his plays are meant to be read aloud they're meant to be viewed as well and when you watch characters um oftentimes what they're not doing what they're not saying is just as important as what they are so the the masters of the craft know how to take all of the work and use every piece of it in order to accomplish their purposes. Um, and th- if you're a storyteller, consider how is your syntax, how is your structure, how is your form mm-hmm. assisting your themes, building your characters, driving your plot, communicating to your audience what you want them to know, mm-hmm. right? And and. If, if you haven't taken those things into consideration, you're missing out on a huge opportunity to uh, create something masterful. Right? Yep. Um, that's a, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. It's, uh, like you said, I'm not a writer. Um, but if, if, if you can master that, you will have done something, uh, I think, timeless. Right? Yeah. Beowulf. Yeah, we're not, we're not masters ourselves, but we have read masters. Yeah. <laughs> and we have kind of studied their work. And what is it that makes them masters? Well, it's hard to nail it down to one thing, but one thing that is true is that they use all the tools in the toolbox. Yes. And I think that's a helpful way to think of it because if you're if you're sitting here thinking like that sounds so hard to do, like I could never do that, um, I wouldn't even know where to start. Don't think of it as a as a as like an overwhelming, uh, un- unapproachable challenge. Think of it as oh, there's so many more tools that I have access to That's in right. order to make this story interesting and good. Sure. And, um, you know, that one may not be one that you can easily pick up right offhand, but, like, look for a way to use that. Look yeah. for a place where that can fit and can and can help en- enhance your your story. And one way to practice it is just to look for it in other, in other stories that you read. Sure. Um, Beowulf is one. Epic yeah. poems are, are going to show them in a, in a way that's usually audible, um, but like, look for them in, oh gosh. I mean, we talked about Mandalorian, Boba Fett. What, what is it that people always say about those? They're Westerns in space. Sure. Why? Why? Because, because they decided that the Western genre enabled them to tell the story they wanted to tell more effectively. Absolutely. They could have done it noir style, right? right. Like it could have been Mandalorian in a smoky office with like a secretary, <laughs> And like Ahsoka Kano or Ahsoka Tano comes in and is like, "Hey, I need you to find this guy." Like a femme fatale. Like, they like with, a, a, with a narrator, like she had the voice of a thousand violins. <laughs> you know, and two like <laughs> she 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 looked like trouble. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, yeah. So they they could have done a lot of things. They sure. chose a western for a reason. So next time you sit down to watch something. Think about that. Think about what's not really in your face. Why did they choose to put it here? Why at this time? Why Why is Star Wars set in space and not right. on an island in the Pacific, uh, you know, during the 1800s? Sure. Why is, you know, all these different things that, that could have been different. Why did they choose those? There's got to be a reason. Yeah, that's so, good. So evaluate that. Yeah, that's awesome. What do you think? Jump I think the- it's time. 
think it's time to get into our story. <laughs> Let's do it. Today's subject. So if you're, if it's been forever, but we are doing the Ghost in the Darkness, uh, which is a 1996 film directed by Stephen Hopkins, um, and the book that we are evaluating is called The Man Eaters of Savo. Colonel John Patterson, published originally in 1907. Yes. Uh, so these events take place, I believe, in 1903, 19 or 18—I don't remember now. 1898. I think, I'm confusing I think myself because uh, I, this takes place almost at the exact same time that um, *Heart of Darkness* was published, and has a similar setting. And I think it's 18. I think it's 18, like late, late 1898, 18. something yeah, like that. Okay, I think so. So based on a true story, which we'll have some stuff to say about. Yeah, we will. Um, so let's get into it. I'm going to talk about the book first okay. because that preceded it, obviously. John sure. Patterson was a British Army guy. He was a he was a lieutenant colonel sent to Kenya. wasn't Kenya at the time. I'm not sure what they called it then, but um, modern-day Kenya to an area where they were um, working on – the British government was working on a railroad through British colony areas. Um, now, I realize that this comes with a lot of uh, political baggage for modern modern times. We're probably not going to say a whole lot about that. Yeah. Um, he was a specifically a bridge builder um, and was kind of given the task of being the overseer for the entire project. He was Most of his attention was going to have to be devoted to a bridge over the Savo River, which was a particularly unpredictable river. This is the African savanna area. This is not jungle Africa. This is like grassland Africa. Right. And um, uh, it is uh, the river was mostly not very big until rains came and then it was huge. Right. And so they had to build a bridge that could accommodate this. So they sent down this specialist. He was a avid game hunter. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he was probably just itching to go and he did go and he hunted a lot of stuff while he was down there. A lot of his book is about his adventures hunting um, some notable things. Most famous, of course, for killing the lions at Savo. And then there's uh, an Eland named after him, yes. Pattersonius, um, and, uh, I don't remember it's genus, but, um, it's, uh, like an antelope that he discovered while he was there. Of course he shot it <laughs> and, um, when he brought it back, they realized that it was, a it was a species that they had not cataloged. So they named it after him and, um, now it's, now it's named after him. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So great. So that's the book. So, uh, let's, let's start by talking about, um, Let's start by talking about the plot of the book. Let's just do that first, and then we'll shift to the movie after sure. we've covered the plot. Sure. So with the book, the, you know, first of all, really interestingly written because it is a, a piece that he wrote with his own hand, uh, and it catalogs all of his time there. And it's really a series of short stories. Yeah. Um, each chapter is sort of a self-contained episode um, with a couple of through threads that tie it all together. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, um, of course, the main project is him building this bridge and details a lot of the struggles that he has in doing so mm-hmm. um, and obstacles that he's got to overcome. And the, the main piece of that is the camp is being beset by two lions mm-hmm. uh, that are that are eating um, the coolies, right? Yeah. The the locals that that which that, he's that term that by the way that that's Patterson's term, and what he means by that is uh, individuals that were hired uh, and imported from outside of Africa. Uh, they had a lot of Indian workers. They had a lot of people from like Pakistan um, that were 
British colonies, yeah. and they would they would employ them and bring them to Africa. I assume they brought a lot of them because they had done this kind of work before. Because mm-hmm. I don't know, otherwise they would probably just hire locals. But, right. Um, but so he he refers to the hired hands as coolies. Cool. It's not a racist thing because it's it applies to multiple races throughout the books. Yeah. Um, I think that sometimes people use it as a racist term, or maybe they have at some point. Um, but that's not how Patterson uses it. Yeah, yeah. So the I hired mean, hands. That's actually one thing that he's. I'm, I'm, we're already. I'm already jumping off topic, but really quickly, that's one thing that he does really well. Um, he's when he's cataloging his time there, he's always talking about the different indigenous peoples that he's coming into contact yeah. with. Mm-hmm. First of all, he does a really good job of describing their cultures, their customs. Yeah, individual, he, unique yes. people. Yeah, and he's and he's a master of pith, mm-hmm. right? He's very direct. Um, not a lot of. Uh, fluffy flowy language from patterson um and very descriptive uh but also just um a very uh, gracious generous mm-hmm. sort of uh, cataloger right always yeah. talking about like they were a you know a hospitable um mm-hmm. you know in um you know, a sort of ingenious people, you yeah. know, he talked about their customs even oh. even even when he was would talk about them in ways that you know, like that's foolishness, right? Like mm-hmm. throwing ash in the wind, yeah. you know, or some, something like that. To save you from lions. To save you from yeah. lions, right? Like it would still, it was always done in a way that I felt like was just uber respectful, which mm-hmm. tramps all over our modern sensibilities. But anyway, um, so so he arrives. I think uh, he genuinely liked the African. Yeah, people, absolutely. Um, I mean, you, that comes through. You have a lo- when you read it, the book, you get a love for the land. Mm-hmm. I think is 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 definitely one of the things I would say. But um, so he has these man eaters that he has to deal with. He also has to deal with um, working with a lot of different um, people groups. A lot of or a lot La- of different labor problems. Yeah, labor uh, problems, uh, supply uh, problems, weather. Uh, you know, uh, everything that would normally happen. Sure. And then lions. <laughs> sure. And then, and then on top of that, lions. And there's also lots of other wildlife that causes trouble. Yeah, uh, Because sure. it is Africa. This is not a place that's particularly like well settled. There sure. are tribal uh, people in the area, but they they have not eliminated, for instance, cobras. There are cobras that yes. bother them. They have to watch out for They have to take lights out at night because they don't want to step on a snake. Right. There are hyenas in the vicinity. There are lots of herbivores that are dangerous, like rhinos and... Elephants and stuff like that that they got to try to stay. If they don't want to run afoul of them either. Sure. There's crocs sure. in the river, um, so it's like everything's trying to kill him. Yeah. And he just loves it. Yeah. Oh yeah. He just. <laughs> yeah. I, he's living his best life. Yeah. For sure. He's uh, living his best life. Moved in a tent uh, with uh, you know leaves for a roof, and he's just really happy to be there. Yeah. For sure. Um, and so that that the book really is just a journal, right? Mm-hmm. It is a, a depiction of his life there, and um, it. I think you know he's he's a modest writer. Um, he doesn't. Um, I don't get the the impression that he's blowing himself up too much, but um, he's ingenious. I mean, he's he's uh, very very resourceful. Um, he's got he's got a wide range of knowledge on a on a broad array of topics. Um, he's, he's a really, really, um, I think accomplished diplomat in the sense that he knows how to deal with people Mm -hmm. and get what he wants out of them. Um, but he also, at least on a small scale. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah. And and, I mean, he's not, he's not like a Senator, right. But he, he knows how to run a shift, you know, Mm -hmm. he knows how to, he knows how to lead a camp and, uh, you know, he's, he's fair. He's, um, he holds his people, his men to a high standard. Mm -hmm. Um, he, tells them what for when it's yeah. when when they're not meeting it right i mean just a just a solid display of masculine 
dominance yeah. over over a situation without being uh, like a boorish without without being a tyrant right? right without being without overexerting his authority and uh, I, would, I would point to this guy as uh i mean this is this is like one of the shining examples of this era english gentleman yeah for right? sure man you have you have well-mannered i don't th- think this guy was a nobleman i don't think he had a he had a peerage or anything like that but i think he was probably kind of a upper middle class um he, he was fairly accomplished so he probably had some respect wanted to be taken seriously in a culture that valued manners um and and de- personal deportment but at the same time would stand your ground when a rhinoceros is charging at you sure. like courage to the point of psychotic right behavior right um and uh that which gets the most the biggest trait that i took away from him was that he had like brass ones sure like he um was not afraid of anything yeah and if he if he was i'm sure he wouldn't have written down like i was shaking in my boots but there are several times where he talks about how he knew he was being stalked by a lion and it was very unsettling to him. And there's right. just this stoic approach to how he was riding it in the moment. He might've wet his pants, but he, you know, he stayed there right. and dealt with the issue. Yeah. Always. Um, um, which is one of the big, one of the big themes of the book, which is deal with problems. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I love that. Yeah. It's just, you know, do, that's great. Right. Just deal with it. Right. Whatever, whatever the situation is, you handle the problem, right? And it's and there's a certain level of responsibility that he feels as the leader, right? Yeah. As as the one in charge. Like, there's no passing the buck here, mm-hmm. right? Like, they're coming to me, and I've got to fix this, yeah. whatever this is. And right? there's really no procrastination. Like, usually, if there's an issue, he pretty much walks out of his tent and goes to deal with it immediately. Right. Sure. If he can. If he can. Yeah. If, if that's reasonable. So, um, I you know we, I'm trying. I was intentionally trying to stay away from specifics because I want to get into that a little bit later. Do you feel like that's a fair? Let's go movie first. Yeah. Let's that, talk movie yeah. plot first. For right? sure. So we we talked about. So this movie has an interesting little pedigree. I wrote a few things down here. So Stephen Hopkins directed it. Stephen Hopkins also directed Predator Two. Huh. Um. Let's see. Did I write any of the other ones down here? Do do. Uh. Lost in Space. The original. No, well, not the not the TV show, but do you remember the reboot from like the late nineties? Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking with like Matt LeBlanc, yeah, Matt LeBlanc and sure. William Hurt. Yes, um, he That's, directed that. Dude, I love that movie. <laughs> I love that movie. Uh, that movie was, Danger, Will Robinson. That one goes right in the pile with uh, Mario Bros. Whatever. <laughs> what, uh, yeah, it's a good, I mean, for sure, it's not good, but I love that movie. Yeah, I thought I thought it had a lot of potential. Um, the robot was super cool. I had a toy of that robot. Um, the like big blue. Yeah, you know, they for made sure, him super because compared to the old one, he looked. You know that one was cheese ball, but the, the new one was cool looking. Um, but yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if they had problems. Maybe they didn't make enough money on it. They never made a sequel. But sure. anyway, he he directed that. Um, that that was that must have been after this one. Okay, so the writer of this one, uh, screenwriter, was William Goldman. Do you know that name? The name sounds super familiar. So William Goldman has written a lot of stuff. Okay. One of the things that he wrote was the Princess Bride. Okay. And he wrote the book. The Princess Bride, which okay. I think preceded the movie, not by long though, and he was involved in the screenplay treatment as well. Okay, so, so I actually thought the book book came after. Oh, maybe it did. Yeah, uh, it might have. Um, but uh, he wrote both. Okay, <laughs> either okay. way. So, um, so that's kind of his big one. He has several other ones. Um, we have in this one. Uh, we have some interesting. Well, let's let's talk plot first before yeah. we get into too many more things. So, sure. plot of the movie. 
very similar to the book, except it's a sort of a microcosm of the book. It basically only revolves around the incident with the lions. Right. There isn't much else in it. Yeah. We have uh, Val Kilmer, who plays John Patterson. Yes, he does. Who comes in uh, as an overconfident. I wouldn't call him a braggart, but he is very very confident that he's going to be able to just chew this up and spit it out. Like it's yeah. not a big deal. He has experience. He has built in difficult climates before in India. Um, he is tasked by a huge jerk to go and do this. Yeah. And um, uh, so he's like, sure, no problem. I've always wanted to go to Africa. That's a big part of his character as well is that he, he's desperate to see Africa knows right. everything about it, has studied red books on it. His wife, he's leaving at home who's expecting their first child. Um, and when he arrives, he's met by a company liaison who allows him. And one of my favorite scenes, actually, they sit on the very front of the train. And yes. I don't mean the front car. I mean, there's a bench on the cow catcher on the front of the train <laughs> and they sit on it and they, and they ride and there's some great photography and there's some great yeah. cinematography in that scene where they're going through, um, the film, the movie was filmed in Savo partially and also in South Africa. And I'm not sure which scenes are where, but I know that there's at least some of it that's filmed at the physical site where this happened. So you get a really good feel for like what it looked like. Sure. I'm sure some of it's changed, but, um, at least you get the climate and sort of the overall yeah, sure, feel general. of the area. Uh, so he, he arrives at the scene. The bridge is more difficult than he anticipates. He has to deal with, Feuding labor groups. Uh, yeah, that's and they make kind of laid out for him yeah, by sure. uh, by um, uh, Shaman Exposition, who um, tells him like Muslims and Hindus don't get along. Uh, Christians are also here; they do things too. They um, it, everything goes wrong here. Everything's always broken. Nothing works. Right. Uh, which I think one of the weaknesses of the movies they don't really show that. Like he pretty much immediately whips everyone into shape and gets it going. Um, it does, he doesn't need to apparently o- uh, overcome any immediate difficulties. Yeah, yeah, um, that's fair. He kind of says that it looks harder when he gets there, and then they just kind of do it anyway. Sure. Um, but uh, anyway, while he's there, um, lion attacks, kills someone. So he goes out, he's going to hunt this lion. Kills a lion um, with one shot from his in, from his British three hundred three rifle. And Which is what he uses moment. in the book, right? Yeah, That's same same, same caliber, and I don't know if it's the exact same rifle manufacturer. I can't remember, but some of the guns used in the movie were the same that Patterson talked about. Wow, it's awesome. So they they paid some attention. They did they did a little bit of work on that at least, and getting some accurate firearms, um, and probably some, I don't know, some other things that were you know period dress and stuff like that was probably accurate too. Sure. But, uh, so he he is successful, and everybody thinks he's great. Uh, this that does happen in the book later yeah um, but right. uh they wanted to set him up as a guy who is overconfident That's, right this is his arc he's going to start as a guy who's overconfident he gets knocked down by the 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 onset of the attacks by the ghost in the darkness right which is revealed to be two lions um maybe a third of the way into the book i guess it's probably the start of the second act maybe yeah, sure. um where lions attack a couple of people they they come during the day, which is unusual, and when they go to fight them off, they realize that there's two, which is a big shocker moment in the movie. It's a, it's a really great scene. It is a good Sorry, scene. Sorry, I spoiled it for you if you haven't watched it. <laughs> um, but uh, 
that is uh, one of the themes in the movie is that the ghost in the darkness are lions, but there may be more going on right. than just lions. There could be some supernatural thing. Of course, the locals think that there's something going on. There was uh, there was something in the movie about like we think that they're um, the ghosts of dead medicine men who have come back to stop the British from taking over the world. Um, in the book, there is some reference to that, but not not quite that well thought out. Just yeah, sort of right. like they're ghosts. Right. Um, they call them the ghost in the darkness. I don't remember that term being used in the book, so that may be totally invented by the movie people. Yeah. Um, but uh, that's what they named the lions. That's where the name of the movie comes from. And so they uh, they do. They, he tries various things to trap the lions. They always are one step ahead. They kill people constantly. They're killing somebody almost every night, um, if not every night. And um, he's not able to overcome this difficulty. And, you know, workers are disappearing. They're deserting and leaving and quitting and also dying. And um, uh, he, uh, they bring in another hunter um, played by Michael Douglas. Who is not, Which was not based shocking on to me. Yeah. I did not know Michael Douglas was in the film. And when he what? left off screen, I said, Michael Douglas is in this picture? Yes, he is. Yes. Um, so he comes in and um, he uh, kind of supplements the hunting activities and, and brings some new ideas to the table. He's a hunt, he's you know professional big game hunter. Yeah. And um, – also functions as kind of a uh, mentor yeah. to, to Patterson, who's like, "Hey, you've never lost before. Um, you've, you've always everything you've ever done, you've been successful at. Right. You have a pretty wife. You're having a, a baby soon. You're a colonel in the army. You've built bridges. You've just your career's always just been coming up roses for you. And now suddenly, hell on earth. Right? What are you going to do about it? Right? Uh, which I just love that. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, it works." And so uh, through through a series of mishaps, they eventually hunt and kill the lions. Right. Um, it's and it's hard. Um, but uh, and then he finishes the bridge. Now and uh, it, it is true that you can still go to the Chicago Field Museum and see the stuffed carcasses, uh, the skins, and I think they have the skulls as well. They've done some analysis on the skulls, which we'll talk about. Um, yeah, I'm sure. But fair synopsis of the movie. Yeah, yeah, I think it's right. great. So, all right, so let's talk about the. Um, the discrepancies, the, uh, how do we present the characters? How do we present the events? Um, yeah, so I've, I've got some qualms that I would love to, all right. um, get your, get your opinion on. So start with that, uh, Patterson in the book, Mm -hmm. the picture of male leadership. Okay. Right. I, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. Um, and he's confident, but not cocky. Right in the book, I would say so. Um, and just has a an attitude of whatever the situation is, I'm going to rise to the task. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and does. Or I, I almost got stoicism to the point almost of fatalism. Where yeah, it's like I'm either going to rise to the task or I'm going to die or die. But it doesn't matter. Sure. Yeah. There's. Yeah. You've hinted. You hinted on that earlier, mm-hmm. and I. I I'll, you know, hundred percent agree. Uh, first is Patterson in the film. Now Patterson in the film. Uh, he, you're, you're right. He's given to us as an overconfident. Um, uh, I wouldn't describe him as unlikable, though. No, yeah, yeah, no, he no. He doesn't no. come across as a pompous jerk, right? Um, he, he Kilm, Val Kilmer plays him really well. Oh, he I does. Think his performance is really good. No, I'm he's not, a great character. I'm not a huge like Val Kilmer like fanboy. Uh, I don't dislike him, but like this is he does a really good job in this. Yeah, he does. He does. No, it's it's a fantastic character, and and the arc is great because, like you said, he kind of starts off high, he's brought low, mm-hmm. and then you know sort of rises to the task. Um, so here's my here's my um, 
I don't know. Uh, I don't know what to do with this. But if I were looking at the Ghost in the Darkness and I were just watching it as a film, I would love it, right? And I do, I do, I do love it. Um, but one of the things I struggle with is that Patterson is a real person mm-hmm. that lived and breathed and ate mm-hmm. uh, and worked in Savo uh, in the late 19th century. Yeah, and so um, if with, with that in mind. Val Kilmer's character is different from Patterson. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, in there's this uh, Val Kilmer's character has a naivete about him mm-hmm. when it comes to like the gritty hardness of life, mm-hmm. and I think it comes from that like everything sort of come easy for you, yeah. or or at least has come quickly, mm-hmm. um, and you've never really had to struggle. And so like he's when he gets there, he's just sort of you know it's like this is one big safari, and mm-hmm. then like and it's not that he doesn't know how to kill, right? He's yeah. he's a hunter, like he clearly sure. and and a colonel in the army, right? So it's mm-hmm. not like he's um, green or wet behind the ears yeah, there's or whatever. Some, there's some references in the movie to him hunting tigers when he was in India, right? Yeah, so like he's not like green in that sense, mm-hmm. but like. He does have sort just sort of a naivete about him that uh, is sort of falls off as he's faced with the harsh reality mm-hmm. of trying to build this bridge and kill these lions, and you know of course he does rise to the task. But my question is, is that okay when we're talking about a, a historical figure? Mm-hmm. If, if if the Ghost in the Darkness were a movie all by itself. Mm-hmm. I would think that that character arc is superb. I really enjoyed the themes, the introduction. Like, Patterson would never have needed Remington. Is I guess kind of where yes, I'm going. Yes. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like, like he doesn't need the, the real Patterson, the, yeah. the Patterson of the managers of Savo. Yeah, which is, that's the Michael Douglas character who's the professional hunter. Yeah, he's the, he's the mentor character, yeah. right? He kind of helps him um, to... He, Patterson would never need that guy. He'd be happy mm. to have his assistants. Sure. But but Patterson would never need that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, Patterson was the Remington. Yeah, right. Exa- exactly. <laughs> He's, at this, I mean, after you get done reading this book, you're like, they would call him to yeah. help someone else. To help someone else deal because with the problem. Because he, he kills, I don't know how many lions he kills in that book. <laughs> That's amazing. But they pretty how much many? have to kill everyone that they can because they're so dangerous. Right. And they it's not just to people. Like They keep livestock to feed the, the workers. They like sure. for goat's milk and just meat and stuff like that. And there's always creatures coming in there to try to mess with them, and they have to they have to chase them away or kill them. Right. And lions are the worst, sure, because they're big enough to kill people. They're big enough to kill horses and donkeys. They can completely ruin everything. Right. And so it's like, oh, there goes one. Now let's not pretend like Patterson didn't enjoy big game hunting. Either. Sure. He didn't do it just out of utilitarian need. He, when he had time off, he pretty much would- immediately went hunting. Sure. So and he was always looking for something different, but he came across lions all the time. And there were times, there. there were times even in the book where he would be like, "I it just couldn't shoot that magnificent creature." Mm-hmm. Like there are times where he like chooses to put the gun down, but he definitely enjoys big game hunting. Yeah. He loves the sport of it. Mm-hmm. Um, loves the idea of um, the challenge, right? Mm-hmm. For sure. But all of that sort of underscores the point, which is that the Patterson of the movie is not an accurate reflection of the Patterson that actually lived and breathed and mm-hmm. killed the man-eaters. And so my question is, is that okay? Are we okay with a historic, a historical fiction piece, which is what The Ghost in Darkness is, mm-hmm. historical fiction, um, where the character is misrepresented, and if we are okay with that, to what degree is that okay? Mm-hmm. You know, if yeah. if they are we okay with Val Kilmer's depiction of the character because it works for the story, but if Val Kilmer was not Val Kilmer but actually Emma Watson, 
right? Would, <laughs> yeah. we, would we suddenly have a huge problem? I know yeah. I would. Yeah. I think you would too. Mm-hmm. And so, like, where do we draw those lines of, like, yeah, you have some creative liberty, but if you, you know, for example, example, gender swap the character um, or just make the character think and do things that are just completely out of character. Well, if you make a good person into a bad person. Sure, I sure. Mean, that, that's the one that immediately jumps out to me where it's like, so the character Beaumont in the movie is this huge jerk um, who kind of is, is a, I mean, he serves a function in the, in the movie. Right, the I mean, he's the he's sort of the greedy tycoon. The, yeah, and he he's the the the, Dan, the sort of Damocles kind of like oh, if you yeah. don't get this done you're going to your career will be ruined. Yeah. That's the function that he serves is so the audience knows the stakes, right? right? Like you if cuz this guy comes along and says you have to get this done. You can't quit, you can't go home. If you don't finish this, your career is ruined, your life is over. Right. And so he's kind of choosing between actual death at the hand of lions or um Something just occurred to me, or uh, like career death at the hand of British government, which sure. is represented on their flag by a lion. Right. Um, That's so, awesome. Um, so he's got this kind of both ways, um, and that's why he's there. And he and the, that guy that plays him is great. He's you love to hate him. He's yeah, a great yeah. villain. He's yeah. been in a lot of stuff. He played Cornwallis in uh, the Patriot. If right. anybody has uh, seen that one, so he's a face you would know. Um, great British kind of character actor, but uh, I can't remember his name. Anywho, uh, so what if that guy was real? What if Beaumont was a real guy and he was like the nicest guy who ever lived? Sure. He was like a deacon at his church. <laughs> yeah. and he took in orphans and stuff. <laughs> and now his descendants are like, why was great grandpa a jerk? <laughs> and, you're, and they're just like, he wasn't a jerk. You know, they needed him to be one for the movie. So I sympathize with movie writers, screenwriters, because sure. they're like you're handed this story and it's you're said adapt this into a into a two hour feature film, right. or a ninety minute feature film, right? And um, you got to sure. make a treatment. How do you do that? Well, I don't know. I'm looking at this. I'm thinking, okay, I'm William Goldman, and I'm a really good screenwriter. <laughs> sure. And um, I'm going to I'm going to take the Patterson character, and I'm going to tell the story of how a young naive british bridge builder evolves into the patterson of the book right now he's a he's a man who has a reason to have confidence because he's done hard things right now he's a man who like has experience hunting lions he's got all this that he's borrowed from others and now he's done it himself and he can handle everything and so um I I think in the case of the Ghost in the Darkness, I don't really have a huge problem with it. Yeah. Um, at least with regards to Patterson, um, I understand why they chose to do what they did with um, several other characters. Because when you watch that, you you don't get Patterson's inner monologue, um, and and some of those characters are just basically on screen so the audience can get more out of the movie. Yeah. And that's the purpose of the Remington characters. Right? right, sure. Um it wouldn't it wouldn't be interesting and we've talked about this before. Stories on at least on film and a lot of book ones too are more interesting when it's the wrong man in the wrong place. Mm. So um you have sometimes you'll have a, a kind of a lame action film where it's like Oh, this guy's a former spy who gets mugged and now he's going on a rent. Well, of course, you know, that's not, that's kind of interesting because you want to see bad guys get like beat up and stuff. Sure. Like that's the plot of the movie. Nobody. 
um, <laughs> sure. which is a pretty good movie. It's written by the same guy who wrote John Wick, which is also very similar in, in feel. Right. Where, like, random thugs mess with somebody who they really shouldn't have. And in that sense, it's almost an inversion of the wrong man in the wrong place because they did not expect that. But then sometimes you have really corny ones where it's like, oh, well, here's a special forces guy who's trying to get his wife back from, like, gang members. Okay, cool. Show me a movie where it's like an accountant doing that. Right. Rising to the challenge, like learning how to shoot or not, you know, fighting, just scrapping his way there. Yeah, just by the by the by his own strength of will and ingenuity like coming up with whatever yeah. to get the job done. Um show me a movie where a nerd learns how to uh, box right because he wants to get the girl. Right. He's not good at that. And there's boxers that beat him up every day. Um, like there's bullies that are good at karate kid, karate right? Kid, right. Karate kid. The original movie karate kid is basically that plot. He's not good at karate. <clears throat> He's the wrong man to put these bullies in their place, but he rises to the challenge sure. with the help of a mentor character. And that's uh, kind of similar to what we have here. It's not yeah. quite as pronounced, but if he had showed up that day with 15 guns and like, a, you know, a lion, Head yeah, like wearing dress. a wearing a lion <laughs> yeah. pelt or and whatever. Like, okay, he's obviously this isn't going to be that much suspenseful because we know this guy's experienced. He's killed lions before. He's Absolutely. not afraid of them. Absolutely. So you have a guy who comes in who's fresh, naive, and in, in that way it works for us too as an audience because I've not killed a lion. Perhaps you have. I've not. But uh, <laughs> but now I'm in his position. I can identify with him. Yeah, that's great. And th- this is also kind of. Tying into like the, we always come back to Star Wars, but like the Ray Skywalker, the Ray whatever problem. Who? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, is that she doesn't ever struggle, right? Like she, yeah. there's no growth, there's no opportunity for her to rise to the task because she just always seems capable. There's no setbacks. Yeah, there's yeah. no. You have and, to have those. Yeah, so um, I agree, man. I, I'm with you. Um, from a storytelling perspective, the movie The Ghost in the Darkness is a great. Um, uh, breakdown of like how do you do a character who starts off high is brought very low mm-hmm. and then ends heroically um, yeah. on a high trial by fire. Yeah, that uh, that's a ma- it's a masterclass of that. And and I will say one of the things that helps the <laughs> the medicine go down, as it were, is that I do think Patterson of the movie ends where he needs to end. Yeah. Right, like he gets mm-hmm. there, he gets to Patterson of the book. Yeah, you said it earlier. You know. Uh, uh, screenwriter Gold Goldman Goldman mm-hmm. uh, sits down and says, "How am I going to get the Patterson of my movie and make him the Patterson of this book?" Mm-hmm. Right, like that's the story I'm telling. Yeah, I'm telling the journey, and I see like why that is an appealing thing. Yeah, I think absolutely. that they could have done a couple of different things with this source material, and it would have been interesting. But um, what they chose to do was to sort of like give us the story of how Patterson became who he is. With the recognition that Patterson was a great man, yeah, when they right. picked up that source material, right, and um, like a, this movie is not a fall from grace, for instance. Sure, they could have shown him as a, as a, you know, well, you look at the Michael Douglas character of Remington, and he has a little mini arc as well. Like when he shows up, he is sort of tired of life. He doesn't like hunting anymore. He doesn't really have a whole lot of reasons to live. He's just kind of being paid to be there. And hates Savo and doesn't like Africa much and doesn't like doing what he's doing. But through his interactions with Patterson and with Samuel, um, he kind of learns to lighten up a little bit um, to to sort of enjoy life a little bit. Um, 
And right on cue, the screenwriter, when his when his arc is finished, removes him from the movie. Yes, and it's and it's really well done. It is. Um, so, if you've never noticed that before in movies and in books, you will be able to start predicting who's going to die <laughs> <laughs> by paying attention to whose arc is wrapped up nicely, right? With plenty of time left in the movie, right? Okay, so I'll give you I'll give you an example of this. <clears throat> you know this already, but I'll give one for the listener. Star Wars reference. Yep. Empire Strikes Back. Yep. At the end of Empire Strikes Back, Han Solo is frozen in carbonite um, for transport to Jabba the Hutt. Originally, Han Solo was supposed to be killed, and it was a it was a, a change. I don't remember who made the change, but at some point he was supposed he, they changed him to survive. And uh, there was some talk of doing a quadrilogy instead of a trilogy where Return of the Jedi omits the portion of the movie where they go and get him from Jabba's palace. And then there's a fourth film where they have to go and save Han Solo. And I think that they were like, that would be anticlimactic after having defeated the Empire. Um, But uh, anyway, they they decided to to scrap all that and do kind of a different thing. Sure. So he was supposed to die. Why was he supposed to die? Because his character arc was completed, right? Right. He had an arc where he started out as a scoundrel criminal smuggler who was on the run from his... He he didn't even have enough honor to be among thieves, right? Right. Like he dropped his shipment. He he was... Is implied that he might have been cowardly. Um, we We see throughout the movie that he really wasn't cowardly because of his actions. Right. The Empire Strikes Back. Um, he abandoned. He, he's no longer attached to the rebellion for monetary reasons. He's in love with an individual. He cares about the cause, and he's basically become a complete man through his adventures. Right. So his character arc is finished, which is why he has like nothing to do in Return of the Jedi right. except hang around and shoot sometimes. Right. But we all still love to see him. Sure. Of, sure. So nobody's really objecting to him being in the Return of the Jedi, but his character was done. Right. And so. Uh, you know, at the end of Return of the Jedi, Darth Vader's character is done. Um, uh, you know, of course, you know, by the end of the trilogy, everybody's wrapped up. But sure. that's kind of what we see with the Remington character. So if you're if you're watching a movie and you are like, oh, this this guy just finished, like his his conflict is resolved and every, and he's sort of at peace. He's toast. Yeah, he's done. <laughs> he's either <laughs> going to be written out in a way that doesn't kill him, or he's going to die, um, right. or she. So. Uh, and it's not always appropriate to kill him off because that sometimes just leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth. But sometimes it's appropriate. You know? Sure. They die, heroic sacrifice, that kind of a death for a character who may have previously exhibited cowardice, right? Like if there's somebody who's a coward later on, they may die saving someone else's life. Right. Um, or they yeah. may kill someone saving someone else. Um, I'm reminded of Corporal Upham from Saving Private Ryan. Oh, right? Where sure. He, he's, too, he's too afraid to take action in a moment when, and he lets one of his friends die. And because of his cowardice, he is spared because the German soldier just bypasses him because he recognizes that this guy's no threat. Later on, when the same incident is about to occur again, he rises to the occasion and, and gets kind of vengeance for that. Sure. So, but he, does, he doesn't die because that's not appropriate for the way his story would have been told. So right. that's something that you can see. You can observe that in, uh, in books and movies. Sure. It's certainly in this one. So. Sure, yeah, all that's good, and and uh, the the I would say the Ghost in the Darkness is uh, fantastic. It's structured fantastically. It takes all of those things into account, and I do really enjoy um, the way that they set Patterson up from that you know starting off high, fall, rise again. Mm-hmm. The way they use Remington, 
um, I thought all that's done, all that's good. And you've you've kind of helped me to make peace with the fact that mm-hmm. he may not be the Remington of the book, but in his own right, he is the Remington of the book, and that he gets where he needs or to Patterson. get. Sorry, yeah. yeah, Patterson. Thank you. And um, you know that he uh, they 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 do honor Patterson. I think with I think I think the film celebrates Patterson and mm-hmm. honors him in a way that is faithful to who he was. All right. Uh, I think yeah. I can, I think There's I can certainly, say that whenever you're doing a historical epic, and I know that we're asking a lot from Hollywood when I say this, but there is, <laughs> there is an ethical question. Wait, sorry. Did you put Hollywood and ethical in the same <laughs> sentence? Yeah. Yeah. You're asking for the moon friend. Yes. Yes. Please give me the moon. <laughs> but I think that they, I think, I think in a, in a, in a ideal world, there is a, there is an ethical standard and I, I'm not, I'm, I'm not prepared to say what that would be. I think it would probably be case by case. But like, creative license, poetic license is something that sometimes you need. You can't sure. always cram an entire person's backstory into a, a feature film. Right. You can do more with like a like a prestige television show kind of thing. But, sure. Um, where do you draw the line? What do you include? How do you change it? You know, if the book is about a guy who starts the book as a complete character and doesn't have really any room to grow, which I would argue that the book does not do that. Um, I think that the character arc is much more subtle. Yeah. But I think it's the same one that's in the that's in the uh, the movie. Maybe not quite the fall from grace, but I think based on my reading of it, that Patterson felt a, a lot of remorse for not being able to kill the lion yes, sooner. Yes, sooner. I agree. He theorizes, Patterson theorizes, that they may have killed up to 130 people. Right. I don't remember what the biggest number is in the movie that they say. Um, it's over 100. I can't remember yeah, what it is. I think it's 135. Maybe so. That, that would be. Right. That would be, I think, the same as the I think, book. I think they use the same numbers as the They book. know for sure... 35 right and scientists who have evaluated the skulls say that 35 is consistent with like the wear on the teeth and stuff like that but patterson also mentioned that they did not attack only their camp that they also would attack neighboring camps right that they would also kill people who were indigenous to that area and nobody kept records of those right and so he thinks that they killed like lots more than they had records of right so um, and then some of their behavior, which this is kind of a transition into another yeah, let's thing go. I let's wanted go to there. talk about. Some of their behavior is bizarre, according yes. to Patterson's own records. Right. And I've, I read a little bit. There's there's some – I Googled a little bit of scientific uh, inquiry into the lions of Savo because man-eaters are not that unheard of. They're unusual. They're a lot more unusual now. But in those days when people weren't driving in cars and stuff, um, lions would kill and eat people. Um, yeah. It's unusual unless they're in a tight spot uh, food-wise because it's just not their natural prey. And I think that, you know, the Bible tells us that that animals are stricken with the dread of mankind. Mm. So I think that they attack out of fear. There are certain ones that are large that will attack from time to time, but I don't think, given their druthers, that they would do sure. that. So, um so man-eaters happened occasionally. Very unusual, though, that there was two. Yeah. And uh, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's totally unheard of either. The movie kind of makes it sound like that never happened. But I think it's extremely rare. So it would have probably been kind of shocking to them. Yeah. So one, one of the theories that the scientists brought up was that one of the lions, at least, was injured and could not um, pursue and eat as normal prey. They think it had an injury to its jaw um, or maybe it had, like, some tooth problems. So it needed basically softer skinned food and people were what was around. Yeah. Everything else was too tough to, to like eat. And um, they would they would crawl through the thorn fences 
tearing themselves all to pieces. They would grab a person with their mouths, and then they would drag the person back through the thorns. And then they would sit right outside of the light, and they would eat the person, and they would crunch the bones, which is unusual. Mm. According to what I read, that typically, it's not typical for lions to do that. They're not a, a lot of wild animals are not very efficient eaters. They won't eat. They won't sit there and eat and like stay by the corpse for like a whole de- day or two to eat everything. Right. It's not like you hear like, well, the Indians used every part of the buffalo. Yeah, lions don't. They eat until they're full and then they leave. <laughs> right. And a lot of times they'll eat the soft parts first. Well, like this is what allows for scavengers and, and yeah. other so animals to forage. Hyenas right? show up. Yeah, so there's, you know, a lot of those animals that they kill are big. Zebras sure. or horses, you know, they're big things. And so it doesn't take that much to fill up a lion's stomach. They are big animals, but like they don't need to eat an entire zebra, um, maybe a whole pack. But anyway, they would eat and crunch the bones which is uh, usually only happens when they're starving. Right. And they just desperately need all the nutrition out of the thing. And there's no way that was true because they were killing someone and eating them almost nightly. Almost nightly, yeah. Um, so this is Patterson's testimony. He was from his hunting area, which he couldn't get down out of because then he would be a sitting duck on the ground at night when he can't see. Um, the lions would sit out of sight and they would crunch bones. And... They came in, they would. They were able to avoid all of his traps, yes. they were able to avoid all of his bait, he put bait out, he would put out donkeys, he would stay by corpses that they had killed the day before, hoping that they would come right. back the next night, they didn't do that. The incident in the film, which if you watch it, is one of the weirdest, you're watching it and you're like, well this is just silly <laughs> movie stuff. They rig up a train car with a trap door on, the, on one end of it, and then in the other end, behind, secure behind iron railroad girders... Um, like railroad ties, not ties, the metal, the actual rails. Yeah, the actual rails, yeah. They cut sections of rail in such a way that were too narrow for a lion to fit through. There were guys waiting with rifles. The lion would come in, trip the wire, closing the door, allowing the guys to shoot the lion. I mean, what, less than two feet away? Yeah. Is that fair? Very close. Very close. They could have reached out with rifle barrels and touched the lion. And touched the lion. And um, this happened in real life. Yes. Patterson actually built this thing and, and did it. And it didn't work. Like the lion came in and tripped it, and they shot at him and missed. And they didn't. And they didn't hit the lion at all. And then they broke. Somebody shot the chain and broke the door open. That right. happens in the movie. It also happens in the, in the book. Lion escapes. <laughs> this is weird stuff. It is. We're weird talking stuff. about. We're talking about um, stuff that seems like there's too many coincidences yep. here. I think that's yep. maybe the thing that's giving me pause. Is like. How, how did that also happen? Right. It's weird that they're two man-eating lions. It's weird that they're just man-eating lions at all. Um, it's weird that they keep doing these things. It's did, weird that they their their eating behavior and hunting behavior is not normal. Not normal. Did you uh, come up? They were maneless in yeah in uh, Patterson's account. Yeah. The movie puts manes on them. Yeah, they're more which I think typical looking. I think that's a good move on the movie's part. Yeah, it just, I think we would have confused most yeah. audiences because you'd think, well, they're girls. They're girls, because, right? Uh, we think of lionesses right. as having no manes. So according to what I, the research that I looked at in places. In Africa, where it's hotter than others, a lot of the lions have no manes, regardless okay. of gender. Regardless of gender. Or age. So um, the males may have like more of a scruffy neck than the females, but it wouldn't be like a real one. So if you look up the pictures of these lions, which you could find easily, you'll see that they don't have manes. Yeah, they look like lionesses. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that was my first um, thought. But anyway. So they, but they are males. They, they just, they're males. So that, that particular factoid is not, um, that's not super odd. 
uh, for the region. No, not uh, not really. Okay. I don't think that's that weird. But um, there are all of these weird yeah. things, right, that are happening around mm-hmm. them. So we got to ask the question. Yeah. Are these, in fact, lions? Yeah, I don't know. That's or or are they lions plus? Uh, I think that's that's where I lean. Um, yeah. Look, we know we know. So, if you're new to the podcast, we are Christians. We believe in the spiritual realm. Yes. We believe in an, in an Almighty God who created the heavens and the earth, and His Son Jesus Christ, and His Holy Spirit, the Trinity. We also believe that there are spirits other than them we believe that there are angels and demons and that they are active and moving and doing things and there are other things out there i think that are even outside of that and we don't have we can get into that maybe other some other time or maybe now who knows but i'm a part of an online chat group that um periodically will discuss supernatural oddities yep sasquatch you know uh, sure. alien sightings and sure. stuff like that where do these things fit into the spiritual realm and i think this is a good candidate for that discussion because we've got too many weird behaviors too much malevolent hate and yes. evil coming yes. from these animals yes and their ability to evade capture <clears throat> to me seems to imply an other than animal intelligence. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this is kind of a question for the listener. You know, if you're watching it, the movie plays this up more. Yeah, sure. Uh, the movie has more of a, you know, you're, you're watching it and, and Patterson, I guess maybe sort of a, not exactly a B plot, but sort of a, a secondary element to his character is like, I can take anything in this world. Mm-hmm. And now he has to confront the possibility that these lions ain't exactly from this world. Right. Like they might not be something he can beat. Um, and the movie, the movie kind of teases. Oh, one thing we forgot to mention is the layer that the layer, find, yes, full of human remains. Yes. Um, they don't go too deep into it, basically, because Patterson, who up to this point has showed a spine of solid iron right. in the book, is like we're too creeped out, and we think there may be something else in there. Right. And so they don't go in. They throw some rocks in or, or, or something because right. they find like a hole in the in the roof of it, like up on the ridge above it or something. But um, nothing comes out, and they don't they don't go in much past the entrance because um, it's you probably aren't going to have a cave unoccupied for and long. This, in the in the book, yeah, the, he had spent a lot of time in trying to hunt the lions, yeah. trying to find this lair. Yeah, he finds it after he's yeah they're them, gone. Yeah, right, and he kind of comments on that, like this thing that I've been searching for for you know, how many mm. days I just stumble upon. Yeah. And then he talks about like, but I won't go in like, cause it's, you know, terrifying or whatever. Yeah. And, and why at you, this point? You know? Yeah, sure. And you almost get, but you almost get the impression. I mean, this may be me reading too much into the book, but I almost got the impression that like, man, I'm kind of glad I didn't, have to go in there right yeah. like, <laughs> like i'm glad i took i'm glad i took care of the problem and uh, didn't have to go in there yeah. because that's awful yeah. right and uh and in the movie they do a great job mm-hmm. i mean that place is hor- horrifying yeah. right yeah. just full of human rights uh really quickly before as we're talking about this um the patterson documents that the lions lick the skin off of there yeah is that is that a lion behavior do you know well i don't know because patterson doesn't comment on it much in the book. Right. The Theoden comments on it yeah. in the movie. <laughs> yes. That's actually as absolutely my wife. See, my wife would be angry because for her, he's the captain of the Titanic. 
Oh, but what, what for, is, but Bern, for us, Bernard, he's Theoden. What is his name? It doesn't matter. He's Theoden. Okay. <laughs> he's King Theoden. Okay. <laughs> King of the Golden Hall that's says right. that uh, <laughs> that it's unusual behavior for lions, and I don't know if that's put in there for dramatic emphasis or if that's actually a, a true fact. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I don't. Know. I don't have any. Re- that seems weird. I don't know why a lion would do that. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're big cats, and cats will play with their food. Um, sure. I don't think that they were torturing people, like keeping them alive, but I could see them not being in a big hurry about eating, especially if they weren't hungry. Sure. Um, but if there's more going on, right. then, you know, uh, what's the most horrifying way that I... Yeah, a list of ways to die being mauled to death by a wild animal would be towards the bottom. Yeah, yeah. It's you on know, the, that's, that's like down the there bottom. with like burned to death or I'm buried trying. alive or something like that, you yeah. know. Um, so that's pretty horrible. And then you think about like, okay, this... This animal is not even, it's not even the, like, hunter instinct that's driving it. It's like hate. It's personal. Yeah. It's a desire to, to snuff out life for no reason sure. other than just because it's there. Another thing that you mentioned, um, I can't remember if you mentioned this before or not, you definitely talked about how they would crawl through the thorn bushes. Yeah. Uh, just a complete disregard for self-preservation. Yeah, well-being. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, that is that just seems to fly in the face of everything that I am. I'm, I'm no big game hunter. Right. Mm. I'm, you know, but it just seems to fly in the face of everything. I think I know about the animal kingdom, right? That, sure. that yeah. self-preservation. Well, there, it seems like most predators are, are hunters of opportunity. Right? Yeah, like they're exactly. Gonna take out, and that's, that's a, you know, this is part of the reason why evolutionists believe in natural selection, because you have an animal like a lion and they'll hunt zebras and the ones that they kill, are the sick and old. Right. And they, can, they know which is which. They right. can tell by looking at them and they can tell by smelling them. Right. So the old ones and the sick ones get picked off, which means that the rest of the herd is strengthened marginally by not having weaker members present. Sure. Um, there's been documented evidence that um, predator species will leave pregnant females alone of prey species. And it's an instinct probably that says, leave this one alone. It smells funny. Leave it alone. And that that we would argue that that's probably God, um, or, or uh, maybe not actively taking a role in that specific encounter, but he has he has put that Built instinct in, in yeah. so that um, you know animals can Thrive. can retain a, a, a thriving kind of balance sure. in the ecosystems as he as he wants to wants to see them ordered. Sure. So, you know, what do you do when you have an animal who's who's misbehaving? Is it because the animal's deranged? Because like mental illness could potentially be like oh sure. I mean sure. You got an animal with if it has a tooth problem, it could have tooth decay. Tooth decay can get to your brain. It can kill you. Sure. So what if it had a brain problem? But then there's two of them. What right. are the odds of that? What and the then they don't kill each other. Yeah, they find each other. And when they and when he hunts the things down, he finally kills them. They're covered with scars yep. from all the incidents where they've crawled through these thorns. Yeah, man. And I couldn't help reading that and thinking of the guy in the ga- the Gadarene demoniac oh, who cut sure. himself with stones. Sure. And he couldn't be held down with chains. Like he re- he he escaped every kind of device that mankind could use to restrain him. Yeah. And these lions are similar. I yeah. mean, there's just too much of that kind of thing. I, sure, I'm I'm walking away from this thinking that there was that there was demons involved. Yep. Well, Patterson himself, who is notoriously skeptical, yeah. um, as a as a as a uh, he's a naturalist chronologer. Yeah, he's yeah. a naturalist, right? When so when when you read his 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 take on on the events, he is notoriously skeptical of all things supernatural. But even he himself says 
that it, that the alliance appear to have a charmed life yeah right that there's something otherworldly mm-hmm. he can't believe it yeah when they escape that train car like yeah. how how mm-hmm. is it possible and when you've watched the scene in the movie it's one of those things where you're like <laughs> this, this is dumb yeah. right because like this would never happen in real yeah, life and it did and they right? comment on that in the movie right like they kind of get themselves out of it by later when Beaumont shows up, he's like, what idiotic thing is this that you, he was like, well, I didn't make it up for the lions. I made it for this tiger and, and India that was bothering us. And he's like, Oh, and it worked. And he's like, actually, no. <laughs> and then, and then Remington shows up right. with a badly needed kind of shot in the arm where he says, I use something just like this one time. And he's like, did yours work? And he's like, no. <laughs> so there's, it's almost a running gag that uh, like this thing didn't work, but I, like they knew that it looked silly on right. screen. But it was too it was too strange for fiction. Sure. So they were like, "We've got to have this." Got to put it in you the know? movie. I'm so glad they did. Yeah. I really am glad um, they did. Um, it makes a great set piece. Um, they were able to they were able to feature their lion animatronic um, pretty prominently in that scene. So what? Demon possessed lions? I, I mean, don't see why not. I, That's what I think. I do too. Yeah, I um, do too. I, I'm I am fully convinced that some sort of supernatural. Something is at work with mm-hmm. the man eaters of Savo, and uh, and then and and so the right thing to do is to hunt them down and yeah, kill them, put them down, yeah. sure. And you know we don't have the ability to cast out demons in that in the way that Christ did. He could have he could have ordered the demons to go out, or he could have just sent the lions into the river the way the, the way that he did with the pigs. And sure. The same incident with the Gadarene demoniac, um, which if you if you haven't read that, look that up. That's a interesting account too, where Christ. Uh, uh, appears on the shore of uh, an area known as the Gadarenes. It's kind of a Gentile area. And there's a man living among the tombs, naked, who wails all night and cuts himself with stones. He's been cast out of society because they can't restrain him or make him behave. And he's just a raving lunatic. And he comes up to Christ and he bows down before him and he says, Have you come to torment us before the time? Which is a reference to their final judgment. Sure. And... Jesus basically tells them to shut up and they say, please don't throw us into the outer darkness. Send us into those pigs. And Christ says, go. And he permits them to leave. Right. And, and then before them is the clothed uh, man who, who's back in his right mind, who's been saved from the oppression of a, a demon, a number of demons so numerous that they refer to themselves as legion. Legion. Yeah. And so uh, that is, um, that is of course a true story. And, we can't do that. Like I could not walk up to a demonic lion and order the demons to leave. They would just eat me. Right. And so you shoot the lions. Sure. You know, we use the weapons that we have to do God's work and we take dominion over the earth. Right. And that's a theme in Patterson's work. It is, dude. I'm so glad you said that. Uh, literally what one of the things I wanted to comment on was um for two things. One is very personal, which is that I've read several safari adventure stories mm-hmm. um i can't like they're i can't think of titles but like that alan quartermain kind of yeah. you know uh, like feel. the hunter from jumanji yeah right exactly <laughs> and and i'll be honest with you as a kid i never felt that stirring within me to like do that i mm-hmm. wanted to quest with swords yeah. and shields and dragons yeah but man, when I read Man Eaters of Savo, yeah. I felt like I was like, "Is this what Hemingway felt like all the time?" Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, he's like, another one that writes about this kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, yeah. is, is it, like I I felt like like that wild stir to like 
go to the plains of Africa and hunt lions. Like I just, you know, there was something that I woke within me that I just became, you know, like, like, yeah, let's go do this. Mm -hmm. And I would die very quickly if, if if I were put in Patterson's position, probably. But, um, uh, but anyway, but, but part of that is because he is fulfilling that creational mandate mm-hmm. to go and take dominion yeah. he's sub, he is and taming the obstacles he's taming the earth mm-hmm. he's overcoming the obstacles he is uh I, if we're right about demons here literally killing evil mm-hmm. right like dispensing evil well demons are not if you shed man's blood then by man your blood will be shed right? sure like that's an exodus so if if you've got an animal that goes around killing people you've got to kill, gotta the kill thing. It. yeah that's a biblical ethic sure absolutely you don't you don't you don't move it to another animal sanctuary or something like that. You right. kill the thing. You kill the thing. You know, if your dog is vicious and it bites someone, you've got to put it down. Right. Um, and so that's that's not a that's not a um, an issue where it's like, oh, you know, let's just put it. We'll, do, we'll rehome <laughs> it. No, you know it's vicious. Sure. Put it down. Bible Perfect. talks about that. If your ox is in the habit of goring people and right. you don't do something about it, then it's you're on. on the hook. Yeah, it's on you. Well, that that I mean that's obviously that's very well said, and and he's doing that. He's doing, yeah. and uh, we haven't even talked about my favorite scene, my favorite scene of the book, when the mutiny is taking oh, place, yeah. Yeah. and he's told by several individuals, "Hey, the workers are going to rebel against you because they're mm-hmm. upset about the man eaters, and they yeah. also and they think problems. they're being not getting treated yeah. fairly, they're not getting paid fairly, whatever." And his response is like, like, dude, he he's told. By, yeah. by more than one person, like they're gonna kill you. Don't go down there. Don't go down to the quarry. They, they were waiting for him with clubs and pickaxes yes. to kill him. They're going and to his kill you. Friends stopped him while he was walking in there, and were like, "They're waiting to kill you. Go back to your tent." Right. And he didn't go back. He to doesn't his go tent. back to his tent. He just walks in there. Yeah. And like, just commands. Right. Yeah. Just tells them. And like, what I loved about that scene. He doesn't bring. A goon nope. army with him. Nope. I don't he even d- think he had a gun. He doesn't him. draw his. I think he does have a gun, uh-huh. but he never draws it. Okay. Um, he may not actually have it. Maybe you're right about that. But regardless, he doesn't use a weapon. Uh-huh. He just confronts them with the truth. Yeah. He tells them, "You're not being treated unfairly. Mm-hmm. If you just if you kill me, they'll just send somebody else. Yeah. And your treatment's not going to change. So what will it profit you to take my life? But if you go back to work." You know you'll get what you deserve mm-hmm. because I've proven myself to be just. Yeah, and then he just walks away yeah. like it's just incredible, man. And they and they get back to work. And they and they get back to work, right? Like it's yeah. just it's just incredible. And so like that whole episode, um, you know, like a man who knows, who's confident, and and I do agree with you that like there's some stoic fatalism in there mm-hmm. that we might say is like misplaced, mm-hmm. right? Like our confidence should be in us in in a higher power, right? Mm-hmm. Our confidence should be in the Lord, and so like it shouldn't be like, well, I'm either gonna go in there and fix this problem, or I'm gonna get clubbed to death by a bunch of coolies, yeah. right? Like that's that's what he's thinking, yeah. right? Ours should be more like we're gonna just go and do the right thing because serving God is better than serving man, yeah. right? And like I'm I won't love my life so much that I won't. Mm-hmm serve the Lord, right? So it's the motivation's slightly different, mm-hmm. but still, man, it's just yeah. like, what a man. Like, right thing. Yeah. like, what a man. Mm-hmm. I just love it so much. People who, uh, there's a line in the movie Braveheart, which is just one of those movies that's just so inspiring. Sure. Because it, it's a great one. Um, but uh, uh, when the leprous king of old king, or the leprous, uh, what He's the, the father of... Uh, what is that guy's rank? I cannot remember. 
Um, it's Robert the Bruce. Yeah, it's Robert the Bruce's father. Um, I don't. I got. He's a Bruce, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Um. Anyway, he's a nobleman. He's leprous, so he's kind of in seclusion. The only person who comes to see him is his son, and he's talking to him about William Wallace. And he says, "Admire this Wallace, because uncompromising men are easy to admire." But it's the and then he hems and haws about you know you got to make deals with England and all that stuff, which right. ends up being bad advice. But um, that that line always stuck with me is that uncompromising men are easy to admire, and we we like and respect people who draw hard lines and stick by them. Yes. Um, and so he was like, he, he this is he shows up and he says, "We've got work to do. We're going to get the bridge built." And, you know, what, what questions do you have? Sure. <laughs> you know, sure. Um, and so by the end of this whole incident, they give him a silver plate with, uh, I can't remember what the exact, uh, oh, uh, yeah. wording was, but it was something like, we, we appreciate you for doing all that you've done for us. And right. so he really wins him over. He does. After, of course, you know, killing these man eaters, um, and other things. And like that's the thing. And that part is important, right? Mm-hmm. That he doesn't just tell them this is what is yeah but like he also is a man worthy of being followed right yeah. so like he's not just barking out orders and and using money as a way to win people over mm-hmm. he's putting his body on the line every night going yeah. after these demon possessed lions yeah. right like when he, they almost get him a couple of times there's some close shaves um where so if you if you watch the movie one of the lions is is killed in a scene where he gets onto a rickety scaffold it's basically a board on top of two uh, A-frames. It's like A-frame yeah. logs that they have lashed together with, with some kind of cordage. Um, and uh, in the book, that scene, uh, he talks about how the lion is present. He knows it's there because yeah. he can see it, but he yeah. can't get a clear shot at it for like hours. It's trying to figure out how to get to him. And I think that may be the closest he ever comes to admitting that he was afraid that the lions were going to kill him. Right. Because it was like, if he wanted to, he could probably make the jump. Um, but he knows that I'm alert. So he's trying to get the jump on me and he eventually kills a lion from that post. Yes. Right. But he shoots the lion and the lion disappears into the underbrush. And now he's had a decision to make. Do I get down and go after it? Sure. So basically he unloads his magazine into it and then he gets down and goes after it. Right. right. And when he gets to it, he finds that it is in fact dead, um, that he hit it with like, I think three shots or something like that. So, um, but, like, put yourself in that position. You might have hit it. The only way to know for sure is to go look. Right. And if you didn't hit it... Game over. You're not going back up. Right. You know, that's just, this is going to be your last your last hurrah. Um, the second line that he kills is a little more frantic. They they are on the ground with that one, and um, it turns into a... I think he ends up having to shoot that one seven or eight times yeah. before it finally dies. Yeah, but, that's a pretty tense scene in the book. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I mean, I, I don't know. You got any other major things to say about this one? Well, it's just great. First of all, um, really enjoyed it. Like I said, it inspired that spirit in me to like go and tame the savanna. Um, read the book. Um, he's great. He's mas- He's a master of pith. Um, he's an excellent uh, cataloger of events and things. Um, you you will walk away with a deep appreciation for. Africa for its um, for its beauty for its um, savagery I mean that in in the truest sense um, for its culture uh, for the peoples that that populate it for the animals that populate it um, so for all of those reasons it's a great book but man if you're a dad yeah. read this book mm-hmm. and if you have sons 
put it in their hands, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's just such a good um, conversation starter for what does it mean to be a man? We don't agree with everything that Patterson is and says, mm-hmm. but I agree with a lot of what Patterson is and says. Yeah. And on the few places that I would disagree, those are great conversation starters. So definitely re- read it. Everyone, yeah, it's, it's a very great book. short. It's only about a hundred pages yeah, or so. Quick read, dense read though, wasn't it though? Yeah. I mean, it he covered yeah, a lot of ground. He does. It, he's great. I mean, it's really, really great uh, because it doesn't feel long, but it's mm-hmm. very dense. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. And then the movie, um, a great narrative of a of a fall and a rise. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to learn how to rub some dirt in it and get back up. You know how to. You know, I'm thinking of Batman Begins. Why do we fall? Mm-hmm. So we can learn to pick ourselves back up again. Yeah. That sort of uh, grit and deter- grit yeah. determination. Mm-hmm. If you're looking for a film that's going to exemplify those themes, yeah. I, so there's there's the the line that Remington gives him where he says, there, "We have an expression in prize fighting. Everybody has a plan until they've been hit." Right. Which I don't know where that originally comes from, but I feel like I've heard it in more than one movie. Or maybe it really just is a legitimately an old boxing saying. But, you know, he's got a point there. Like, everybody's like, okay, I'm going to do this to beat my opponent. Well, then you go out there and you start actually trading blows with your opponent, and he's not behaving the way you thought. Right. Do you just shrivel up and die? Do you get tough and take it? Do sure. you, uh, you know, do you use your head and think of a new way? Um, and, and that's a big part of this movie. The real low point, I should probably, we should probably mention this scene too um, before we get. Uh, before we get done with it but the scene where uh, his gun misfires mm. is, is kind of his character's well that's probably not the lowest point but is the point where he realizes that like I I can't do this alone This these things could kill me if they wanted to so he's using we can talk a little bit about the guns that, that are involved He's using a 303, which is not a small bullet, right? It's a it, that's the 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 bullet that the British issued in World War One and World War Two. Um, so the Enfield shot it. His gun is not an Enfield, but it is a bolt action hunting rifle. I want to say it probably had a three or four round magazine in it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's underpowered for big game. Right, we can put it that way. You could easily hunt like deer with it, um, or and it makes a pretty good anti personnel cartridge for military use, but for like lions. Elephants, certainly not them. Uh, rhinos, it's it's underpowered for that, but he just loved that bullet. So he uses it a lot, and he admits that he should be using a bigger gun. Right. Um, so when he's going, they're planning a hunt. They think that they're going to be able to get one. This scene does happen in the book. It's not exactly like this, but um, in the movie, they bring in Maasai lion hunters um, who are kind of specialists in this. And uh, Remington knows them, and they pay them in cows <laughs> to get them to come and help them hunt these lions. So in the scene, um, Remington and the Maasai go into a thicket, and they're going to drive the lion out of it through sheer numbers and noise. And then um, Patterson is going to shoot the lion when it emerges into the open. So they're preparing for the hunt the night before, and Dr. Theoden gives him his gun and says... <laughs> Can you, you want to switch weapons with me because mine's much more powerful. Right. And his gun is a Farquharson. It's like a Scottish uh, drop bolt or drop block uh, single shot gun. Big game hunting gun. Yes. It's a real gun. Um, and uh, it is a, I want to say the one in the movie is chambered in 400 or something like that, which sounds big, but it's four tenths of an inch is the width of the bullet. Um. In real life, the ideal cartridge for lions is is a 450 Nitro Express, um, which is what the the guys use for big game hunting in this era. 
that's the kind of gun that um, Remington has. If you ever watch it and you're like, yeah, the double-barreled shotgun. It's not a shotgun. It's a double rifle, and it shoots a 450 Nitro. So a uh, very accurate period weapon for this kind of use. So he, he anyway, he has this gun. Dr. Theoden gave him, which he apparently got out of the bottom of the, the armory in Helm's Deep, <laughs> along with that kid's sword from that scene That's in right. Helm's Deep. It's all rusty and crappy. So... Uh, <laughs> So he goes to he goes to the position. The lion emerges from the clearing. He aims and fires, and the hammer drops, and nothing happens. Weapon misfires, and that's when um, Remington comes up and says, "You've just been hit. Get whether you're not you get up is up to you." This is the moment where you decide: Are you quitting, right, and letting me handle this alone, or are you going to just straight up leave Africa because you've been beaten by Africa and these lions and the bridge and all the stuff, right? Or are you going to give Doctor Theoden his gun back? Go clean your own gun, get it ready to go, and have another go at this. Sure. And uh, he has some soul searching to do. Right. Um, and Dr. Thaden gets eaten by lions in the next scene. So, you know, in the book that happened. Yeah, that right. That happened. Um, yeah. So it, what, the Maasai were not involved, but he got all of his workers together, and they were beating the bushes. And the lion came out, and he had exchanged weapons with a guy that he knew, and it didn't go off. And um, in the book, the way he describes it is kind of funny. He says he returns it to him with his compliments at the earliest convenience. <laughs> and I couldn't help but wonder if by compliments it means he sent it back to him in like 40 pieces after it had been like run over by trains and stuff. Or if he hit him in the face or something. Like I could see him being like, hey, your gun almost got me eaten by a lion that was possessed by Satan. Um so uh, but even in that scene in the book he takes responsibility like i shouldn't, I have, shouldn't trusted. have done that yeah, yeah. i should have trusted which him, makes right? perfect sense if you're a person who shoots and somebody's like here we're going to go to a going to go to a hunt hunting situation where we're hunting something that will hunt you right back here's a gun you've never shot right well at the very least you gotta know how it operates you know you need to take it out and shoot it some you need to make sure that you that you understand the sights that you know the hold off for like the iron sights which is all they had in those days for that kind of work and you know you just you need to familiarize yourself with the thing and you need to have confidence that it's going to go boom right and not click click is bad (laughs) click is bad Uh, And when there's a lion looking at you. Now, for some reason in the book, the lion doesn't immediately attack him. I think that, uh, if I remember right, it's because people are getting close to it. So it's like, I got to go. That's kind of what happens in the movie, too. Yeah, Um, I think that's pretty much the same. But uh, it's a great scene. And it's, you know, the moment, the the overall um, kind of, if I could present one theme for the movie, it would be like, what kind of a man are you? Mm. Are you the kind that runs away? Or are you the kind that sticks it out until the end? Even right. if it may get you killed, even if it's hard. Um, and Patterson was on a journey to find out what kind of man he was because he thought he knew. Right. Then he wasn't sure. And now is the moment where he finds out where he's, I mean, it's a trial by fire is really being tested. Yeah. His metals being tested by very difficult circumstances. And you may find yourself in your life in that kind of circumstance. Sure. And, don't miss out on on realizing that the reason why you can connect with a story like this one is because we can identify with a character who's going through hard times. Yeah. And we are faced with a temptation to quit and walk away. And what kind of a man are you going to be? Sure. And yeah, if you're a good. man and you haven't ever had that thought, you need to start asking. Lest you find yourself in Patterson's position where you've never been challenged sufficiently before, but then suddenly you are. 
And now, are you up to the task or not? Sure. Do you have the grit? Can you hang in there? That's right. So that's that kind of stuff is what makes stories have power. Yeah. Can 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 I as a as a dude in Tennessee in landlocked country that I've never even seen a lion outside of a zoo and not even that many times in a zoo can I identify with this guy in this situation? Yeah, because I've had to deal with hard times. I've sure. been knocked down by life. Not to that extent, not in that same way. Sure. But we've but I've been through difficult times and I understand the choice that you have to make. Absolutely. And if you don't you know people who have, and like I don't know. That's that's why that that this is why stories like this connect. Yeah, this is why they land. Yeah. So take note, Hollywood. Look for themes like this. Yeah, absolutely. Timeless, applicable to all, um, accessible, but also done in a in a way that's masterful to the craft. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't recommend the movie enough. Couldn't recommend yeah. the book enough. I think it's underrated. I don't know if it's particularly well liked critically. Uh, I don't know if it made a ton of money. I think it probably did fine. Um, I want, so 1996. I can't really think of anything else that came out like in that same time frame. Sure. Um, that was like it. Uh, if you're if you're a big special effects person, this movie's not bad. Um, they use a lot of actual lions. They have uh, some trained ones. There's actually some amusing. You can look these up. There's some amusing behind the scenes <laughs> stories about the lions. Yeah. Because they had some that were better trained than others, and. Um, you know, every once in a while one would get loose and they would all have to run away from it because they didn't know what it was going to do. Um, they were well-fed and generally familiar with humans, so they weren't like rampaging monsters, but it's a lion. You know, you sure. can't have a mistake. Talks about how they would get them to move around by holding whole chickens out in front of them and <laughs> they would eat it and they would just swallow it whole practically. Oh my goodness. Um, they did They did some animatronics. There's a little bit of CGI. So this is a few years after Jurassic Park did Animals First. The CGI doesn't hold up very well. Jurassic Park had the wisdom to cloak their CGI in, in bad visibility with, with dark lighting and rain, like right. heavy rainfall. Um, the worst CGI in Jurassic Park was the Gallimimuses because it's broad daylight and they're close. That's right. So that same thing happens here. There's an attack where the lions come in during the day, broad daylight. They get people, and you can tell it's a CGI lion, and it doesn't look very good. But the animatronic is good. They have a robot that they use periodically. And uh, there's lots of practical lions just running around doing things. Sure. So um, it's very believable. It feels weighty. Um, I mean, if they were to do this today, the, the lions would probably be CGI 100% of the time, and it would just feel crappy and... Um, they didn't have that. wasn't wasn't very good. So this is another one of those movies that like craftsmen are dedicated to their task. Yep. And it was Stan Stan Winston Studios that did the lion effects. So yeah, we've talked about them before. They're hats off. Some of the best. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, gosh, I think I guess that's all I've got to say about this one for now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think we've covered it. All right. Well, let's see. Let me check my. Uh, we keep dropping our phones. Did you hear thunks? That's us dropping our phones. So uh, that we're we're referring to our notes. I dropped mine. Like it sounds like I did it for dramatic effect. I was like, are they funk lions? <laughs> no, that was not him pounding his fist on the table. Um. So final book, final recommendation. You may be able to guess this. Uh, recommend the book. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Recommend the movie. Absolutely. Also, yes. Which is better? I'm going to go, <laughs> gun to my head, I'm going to go book. I'm going to go book. Yeah, gun to my I'm head, gonna go I'm going to go book. Not a reflection on the movie at all, no, but I'm going to go book. the movie's very good. Um, if you like one, you'll definitely like the other. Yep. So do them both. Do you have any suggestions for further viewing? 
Uh, well, we've already kind of talked a little bit about like Hemingway. Hemingway captures, I think, the spirit mm-hmm. of Patterson really well. You're yeah. a big, much bigger Hemingway guy than I yeah. am, so I'll let. I mean, I'll, I'll leave that ball in your court. Um, Alan Quartermain is sort yeah. of the the quintessential African mm-hmm. sort of hero yeah. in my mind. Or Robert Ruark, yeah. which is not a he, that's an author. Ruark is an author. He writes a lot of hunting adventure uh, stories. Sure. Um, so he's he's another good one that you might yeah. want to look at. I would also recommend if you're looking at something with a little more uh, refinement, uh, Heart of Darkness. Oh yeah, by sure. Joseph Conrad. Very different, but a you would, similar though. setting. Yeah, you would. You'd I work would. Heart of Darkness. I'm always going to try to find a way to recommend that. <laughs> I'm going to find a way to do it for everything. Um, but that takes place. We could be doing an episode of Pride and Prejudice, and you recommend Heart of Darkness <laughs> at the end. Do Heart of Darkness <laughs> instead of Pride and Prejudice because it's better. Because it's better. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but uh, in, in all seriousness, Conrad was uh, another kind of guy like this. I don't know if he was big into hunting. He was more of a, of a sailor, uh, more of a, of a man of the seas. But he wrote a story based on partially autobiographical about a guy journeying into the heart of Africa on a steamboat. Um, uh, less about animals, more about, well, depending on how you define that, more about human nature. Right. Um, and so... Uh, if you like, if you're interested in Africa, if you kind of like this era of exploration and colonization, I recognize that there's some non-PC context. Um, but uh, if you're if you if you find the era interesting, then that's one I would recommend. We could also throw. You said Patterson earlier in the podcast. You said he's a naturalist. I agree 100. percent Jack London's sort of the quintessential naturalist yeah. writer. Mm-hmm. Um, so totally different setting. Yeah, right? totally but a different. Lot of, a lot but of a lot of the same, same themes. Mm-hmm. You get a lot of the same themes from Jack London. Yeah. So, survival. Yeah, um, man versus nature. Man versus nature. Survival. Mm-hmm. Rising to the. So uh, you get some different conclusions. But if you're looking for something that's Maybe not the same setting or the same t- era, but yeah. the a similar theme. Jack London might not be yeah. bad. Yeah, good choice, good call. Yeah. For further viewing, uh, trying to think, trying to think. Um, the okay. Lion King. Uh, <laughs> I think I learned about the circle of life <laughs> by being a part of it. Um, <laughs> I would say the the movie this is weird but the movie that comes to mind for me is Jaws. Yeah, okay. So the reason why I would say Jaws is because Jaws is the gold standard creature feature. It right? is. Um animal attack movies basically are modeled after versions of Jaws. Right. Sure. Um, and That's so fair. it's a good if you haven't if you don't know Jaws, if you haven't seen it, we will probably eventually do Jaws because yeah. there's a book of Jaws. Um but uh it's a great movie directorial masterpiece it's one of spielberg's one of the things that made spielberg the household name that he is and uh just a really good there's also if you if you find that interesting um there's also a really good book that's the journal uh i can't remember what, i think it may be called the jaws journal but it's a behind the scenes book about the making of oh wow and i'm confident there's documentaries of it as well but there's a book version of it that um, is probably pretty interesting too um, and so when you're, whenever you're looking at an animal attack movie, you kind of got to compare it to Jaws and see like, all right, how did they do? Um, sure. what did they do correctly and not? That's um, genius. So that, that may be, that may be one. If you haven't, if you haven't seen Jaws, you kind of have to, so that you can evaluate everything else yeah, by it. That's fair. Um, and you may say, well, this one's better or this one's not as good, but, um, it is the, the main, yeah, the main good. one, one of the first earliest ones that, that really, um, captured the imagination of the people who saw it 
That's about all I've got. I love it. How do we normally end this? Oh, what, well, we what got we next? next week or next time. Next, yeah, let's let's not put ourselves <laughs> on a schedule here. Um, <laughs> we we're gonna have a surprise special guest mini episode coming up soon. Um, that'll be good. Yeah, so that'll be fun. We're gonna be doing Peter Pan. Yeah. So read and or watch one of the 500 adaptations <laughs> of Peter Pan, um, and uh, just be just come prepared to chat about it. Um, we're gonna we're gonna consult the target audience. Yeah, on that, an expert from what uh, I'm told. Yeah, um, but for our the main podcast, <laughs> we're gonna be doing. I think we said Conan. Yeah, let's do Conan, Conan. the Barbarian. Yes, um, the Arnold Schwarzenegger classic. <laughs> we're gonna be ignoring the Jason Momoa remake. We may discuss Conan the Destroyer, which is the Schwarzenegger sequel, which Must was not we? as liked. I'm sure it'll come up. Um, <laughs> I yeah, I'm excited for this one. If you're new to Conan, uh, Conan's a series of short stories. You you might be able to track down a freebie on PDF somewhere. Just look it up. Get familiar with the uh, character if you want to read ahead. I don't know what we. I don't know if we'll discuss a specific story or not. Um, I'm what? probably gonna have to skim something because it's been a while since I've read anything about yeah. about him. But uh, anyway, Conan the Barbarian, Conan the, the movie, Barbarian. and we'll talk about Conan. The character brought to you by Robert E. Howard. I got it sitting on my shelf right next to me, so I'll bust that out and, <laughs> and look over it. Uh, I guess that's all for this one. Yeah. So thanks for hanging in. I have no idea how long we've been going. Feels like a while. Uh, I'd say it's probably been a month and a half, maybe two months. No, I mean, how much, how long has this podcast been going? Like two oh hours? gosh, maybe a month and a half, two months. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's what I meant. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a couple hours. Yeah. Oh, well, you know, our fans love it. All of them. <laughs> all of, all of yeah, them. All of them. Uh, so tune in next time. Uh, if you need to get in touch with it, oh, we got to plug all our stuff. Oh, we got to plug all our stuff. This yeah. is it. This is really the last thing. This is it. Uh, if you it's need like to get the in touch with us, of Lord of the Rings. you can s- <laughs> fade to black, fade back in. <laughs> um, so if you need to get in touch with us, you can email us. Uh, easy to remember, scriptvmanuscript at gmail.com. No spaces or anything. Um, so if you're in Cookville, you need to you need a, you need a place to, to come and chill. You want to talk movies. You want to talk books. You want to talk games. You need to come and visit The Table on Spring Street, uh, right in the middle of town, across from Brost. Uh, get, get a cup of coffee, come by, play a game all day. Bring the family. We yeah. got games for all ages at the table. Yeah, we do. We do. And, and uh, just started doing some tournaments. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, we got some competitive tournaments. Yeah. We're working on sponsorships. So, okay. Uh, yeah, things are things are happening uh, Thursday through Sunday, 3 to 11. Come to the table. Yeah. Check it out. Now, of course, if you want to pick up a copy of one of these fine stories that we've been discussing or just browse uh, what any of the Western canon has to offer, what any other canon has to offer. There's a great bookstore in Cookville, Tennessee, and a couple of other locations across, across the, the southeast. Country, yeah, mm-hmm. there's, there's, they're in various places. Various places. Yeah. Uh, but Walls of Books. Yeah. On Jefferson. Yeah. Right. Cookville's at Jefferson. Kind of close to Walmart. Yeah. Kind of <laughs> close from, to Walmart. Across from, across from Goodwill. Across from Big Lots. Big Lots. That's yeah. right. Um. Yeah, come see us and uh, look in your area to see if you got a Walls of Books there. The people yeah. who own the Walls of Books are the Walls of Books. Is, is, I like it. Yeah. <laughs> people who own the, those are local to you. They live in your area. They are um, 
locally owned and operated and they're good people. So support um, your local bookstore, please. Yeah, yeah, do that. If you don't have a walls of books, find a local indie bookstore. Um, if you don't have one, start one. Oh yes. That's an idea. Yeah. Start one. Um, Oh, what else? Check out our sister podcast, Pop Culture Quorum Deo, um, and the, the Quorum Deo uh, Network. And you can find some writing by us, myself yeah. and, and Joe, at, uh, among other places, I think, servantsandheralds.com, yeah. mm. where we offer our spicy takes on uh, evangelicalism. <laughs> and all manner of things. Yeah. I, we Actually, there's a piece that I wrote up about uh, Patterson. So if you found this topic interesting, you can hit that up. It's a little more systematic, uh, just covering the book only. And what we can learn from that. And I'm trying to crank out one on Horatio Hornblower. There you go. And another one I'm probably going to do on Captain Blood. I'm just doing all the sailors. I love it. <laughs> Horatio love it, Hornblower, probably Captain Blood. And I'm considering throwing one together on, on uh, two years before the mast. But well, I've, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. I've got one on Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. Yes, you do. Um, and uh, a couple of other ideas as yeah. well. So. so, yeah, hit that up. Um, all the guys on there are doing good work. Yes. And um, it's a good place to find some interesting folks that are trying to get up to stuff trying to build culture yes um, trying to start things and help others who are trying to start things small businesses communities churches classical schools yes um you know we're in this this era where it's time to it's time to be building absolutely and fortifying what you have so um, thanks for hanging in there for our our Return of the King, uh, Peter Jackson's Return of the King <laughs> special edition director's cut ending that has gone on too long. We will catch you on the next Script Feet Manuscript. I'm Terry. And I'm Joe. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>